Welcome to the sixth ever episode of the Video Store Junkies podcast, a podcast about movies and the experience of watching them. It's Friday night and we're back in the video store. There's only one film we have our hearts set on tonight. I sure hope they have a copy in stock because it's time for us to close out one of the most epic film franchises of all time. That's right, we've saved the best for last in our Mad Max discussions because, well, George Miller himself saved the best for last with 2015's Fury Road. We have so much to say about this one that we ended up going into a second episode with our discussion, so let's jump right in. So let's jump into introductions and tell us who you are and how you first experienced this film. This week, let's start with Bill. I am Bill Mulligan. I uh, am a high school science teacher in Sanford, North Carolina, part-time movie maker, writer, and podcaster. And I love this movie. All right. Well, uh, how about you, Renee? Oh, did you have more to say? Sorry. No, no, no. Oh, believe me, I will. Okay. No, no, no fears there. How he, uh, how he was acquainted with the movie. Oh, 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 that's right. My relationship with the movie. Oh, that yeah. thing again. Oh, you, you, okay. Um, let's be clear. You can say as little or as much as you want to in these interviews. Well, you know, when you say, what is your relationship with this movie? I just feel like I have to make up something, you know, about mm. the awkward meeting kind of met cute. And, no, I was like dying to see this movie, even though it didn't have the Mad Max of my youth, but he's not youth anymore. And, uh, you know, the imagery was great. And it just exceeded all expectations. This is, uh, you know, my relationship with this movie is, I loved, I liked Mad Max a lot. I love The Road Warrior. I'm okay with Thunderdome. But all those movies, especially the the middle two, are, are essentially a plot in search of a reason for a big chase. And the chase is the real reason to love the movie. And this is a chase that occasionally slows down just enough to, to put a plot in. Well, uh, yeah, that's what I want. I, I didn't know that I was missing this in my life, but um, you know, a long time from Road Warrior to this one. But uh, what what my life really needed was a guy with a flaming guitar in the middle of a chase through 
in Australia that is even more dangerous than actual Australia. So this this is um, if I'd seen this when I saw Road Warrior, I think my head literally would have would have exploded. I wouldn't have been prepared for it. So it probably we probably needed a few decades to to prepare for this masterpiece. That's my relationship. I unabashedly love this movie. Great. Well, let's uh, let's bounce around the map a little bit and head south. And uh, Renee, introduce yourself and tell us tell us about your your relationship with this movie. Uh, I'm Renee, and I am a terrible person because I waited six years to watch this movie, uh, <laughs> but I love it. And now we're in a long term relationship, and I'm very happy <laughs> about it. Um, yeah, I just. I apologize in advance. Yeah, because I love this movie and I love so many things about it that you're going to hear the word love 300,000 times. So, yeah, that's all I have for right now. Great. Uh, Paul, how about you? So uh, when I first heard this was coming out, um, I was like, oh, shit. Another one of these legacy sequels. I was like, come on, you know, give it a rest. It's an older movie. I like Mad Max and everything's great. But and then I saw the first trailer. I was like, wait, this looks like this is going to be really good. Um, so I actually promptly, promptly ran out, got the, uh, the, the, um, steel case set of the first three movies to show my teenage sons at the time. Uh, we spent three nights watching them. So well, this is, this is cool. This is pretty cool. Wow. This is great. Uh, and then we saw the third one and then we were all excited to go see this <laughs> and, uh, got to the theater and were utterly blown away. We were like, Oh my God, that was amazing. I came home. Uh, told my wife's uncle who lives next door, said, you've got to go to, he doesn't go to the theater that often. He said, we've got to go see this. I will go see it with you. We've got to go see this movie. And then uh, I think it was a few days later, the two of us went and saw it again. And, and it's just, it's, it is pretty damn amazing. Um, no lie about that. So uh, there you go. I think I've watched it. I've only watched it a couple times since then, believe it or not. I have the Blu-ray, mm-hmm. watched it, but, um, and then watching it again for this was just like, man, I remember liking it a lot. I remember thinking it was a great movie and they go, holy shit, this is really, it's really up there. And Alan, you have a long and storied relationship with the Mad Max franchise. Why don't you tell us about your relationship with the final installment? So I watched this movie Wednesday night. Um, <laughs> and let me, let me just say, the only thing that I'm going to say is that you will not hear the word love come out of my mouth on this one wow well so, I mean, we can we can, talk, we can talk about it when we get into it that's because but, um, my fist is going to be covering your mouth. <laughs> but yeah i was like i mean really i was like i am i'm glad that we're at the end of the series because i don't want to watch another one of these <laughs> wow well it sounds like we've come full circle so <laughs> i look forward to hearing your thoughts and uh, I'm Zachary Edgerton. I uh, I'm gonna ramble for a minute because I have a hey. Long... Wait, by the way, Alan oh, did yeah. not actually introduce himself with good reason. <laughs> that, that way, people don't know how to find him. That's yeah, fine. That's a good idea. They can't look up. They can't dox him. So yeah, the podcaster, <laughs> formerly known as Alan. Yeah, <laughs> can't find me. So I first started getting into this series in the late '90s. That was around the time. Uh, as we've talked about before, I was kind of sheltered as a kid. I was not allowed to watch R-rated films until I think 98 or 99, which is when I went back and, and watched the the first two movies, which coincidentally was around the time when George Miller started talking about doing Mad Max 4. So, hey, it was great coincidence. I was just watching the films for the first time. There was going to be a new installment coming out. 
any year. I was super excited. I started following the news on back in the day when I'd have to go to the library to log on the internet and read movie news. And then, uh, yeah, I had to wait 15 years to actually see this movie, which I got to say, there are a lot of movies that I've waited years to see, and they've been horrible disappointments. But after 15 years, I finally saw this movie, and somehow it still exceeded my expectations. I remember watching it the night before it came out. I knew I I worked with or I used to work at a movie theater, and I knew a guy that ran a movie theater. And I remember watching it and coming out and just saying like, Mike, I got to watch that again. And he was like, okay, go back in. We'll play it again. For the first time, the only time I have ever watched a film twice in a row in the theater. Uh, Yeah. So we'll talk about the background and stuff. And, uh, but I, I remember waiting for so long to see this movie and assuming that by the time we got to the release, it was not going to live up to the expectations, but somehow it did. So do we want to get back into the background? There's, a lot of history to this film. I think we could probably spend an entire podcast just talking about the background. But if we want to just briefly touch on a couple of the milestones, I'll I'll kick us off here, Renee. I know you have a lot of notes, so I'll probably throw it over to you. But I think it's interesting that famously, this film was conceived by George Miller, as he tells it, as he was crossing a street in Los Angeles in 1995. He says he started crossing the street, the idea came to him, and by the time he reached the other side, he had kind of a fully formed conception of doing a Mad Max film. It was a chase from beginning to end, and kind of had, I think he said, a human as the MacGuffin. So it's kind of funny that he 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 kind of came up with the idea crossing the street, and then he spent the next 20 years essentially making the film and trying to get it released. <laughs> Uh, Renee, do you want to do you want to get into some of the background? Oh boy! Um, does does anyone else want to volunteer? Sorry, I, I just no, I just no, no, that's you okay. because you have all the notes. I put a lot of notes in there that a lot of those were. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm unaware of a um, lot of this stuff. Um, yeah, I didn't realize. Video. Yeah, I didn't realize they had the initial idea was was back in what ninety six, ninety seven. Um, but you, but you know something? Can I just say this? I'm glad it took this long. Yeah, yes. because you know there, there's some projects that sounded cool at the time, mm-hmm. but in the fullness of of time, you realize, thank God it wasn't made. Like James Cameron's Spider Man, <laughs> holy God, would that have been a piece of shit? And I'm gonna sound yes. like a real uh, crazy bird, but um, you almost just think like, oh my God, all these things had to have happened for a reason because it really had mm-hmm. to have. It really had to have been, you know, then it it couldn't have happened in the '90s or the early 2000s. Yeah. It just wouldn't have. Alan. Uh, Alan, we're getting a lot of static on you. That That's was fine. me. I pull. I pulled his cord. We don't need to listen anymore. His foolishness. <laughs> I was trying to be polite about your new microphone. <laughs> oh, is this the magic mic? Oh no, we're covering magic mic next week. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Paul, Paul insisted. Uh, it's one of his yeah, favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, speaking of speaking of magic mic, there's actually an interesting quote from Steven Soderbergh about this film that we'll talk about when we get to it. But so yeah, I mean, in the in the it sounds like in the mid '90s there were there were a couple of things or there were a couple of times where George Miller was trying to get uh, met the Mad Max franchise back off the ground. I think there was a, a at one point there was rumors about a TV series that he was he was going to produce. Oh, Thank God that, that never happened. Oh, that would have been the worst. You know exactly what it would have been. It would have been the Planet of the Apes TV show. Oh, I, yeah. Well, no, I was going to say it would it would have been akin to like the like Hercules the Legendary Journey 
or yeah, something like that. Yeah, he would have buzzed into some town made out of dirt, and there would have been a bunch of people with some problem that he gets to solve. And then at the end, they give him a little bit of gasoline, and he goes off to the next town. Yeah, yeah, it would have been was, awful. I, yeah, I was really stunned when I saw that. I thought, oh God, no, that would have been terrible. Yeah, that makes it sound like the the Incredible Hulk. Yes. Coming to town. That's well, exactly what it would have yes. been easy to do. That's exactly. Yeah, that's right. Which is basically the fugitive. And he'd go to the next town. Has there been a new idea since the fugitive? No. It, yeah, it's funny because if 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 George Miller announced that he was going to do a Mad Max TV series tomorrow, I would be like, I can't wait. It's going to be incredible because of how far TV has come in the intervening yeah. years. But mm, true, yeah. true that. Yeah. Uh, so luckily that didn't happen. But yeah, then in in around '95, he said he had this epiphany. And he had this new idea and, you know, he, he had talked about as far back as 85 when Beyond Thunderdome came out and he was always asked about a fourth one. And he always said, I'll maybe do another one if there's a story, but he always insisted that, you know, the story had to come mm -hmm. first. And so, uh, so he had this idea and he started developing it. And he said, I think there was another instance where he was on a flight and he kind of started brainstorming and he came up with a lot of what actually ended up on screen. So he teamed with uh, Brendan McCarthy, who was a, I believe he was actually a storyboard artist and a comic book artist by trade. And hmm. they basically came up with what was half script, half storyboard. Apparently there was never really a full prose script. It was always kind of done in a visual style, which is very interesting. Also very interesting if you go and look at some of those storyboards, how much of it actually got translated to the screen 15 years later, but uh, eventually it was, I think around 2002 when the film, I mean, it was, it was basically went into pre-production. They were, they had scattered locations. They were working on the, all the vehicles. There was a, a shop that I think they had put together something like 20 vehicles for the film. And it was all set to go in production with Mel Gibson starring and then uh, I think it was a combination of 9-11, which ma had made the, the, the U.S. dollar nosedive. And all of a sudden, they had a much, they, they essentially lost a lot of their budget. And then the Iraq war started, and all of a sudden, the logistics just weren't realistic. And they basically, I think the, the production designer, Colin Gibson, said he was basically, I think he was actually, I think they had already... They were already setting up in Namibia, but he was working in this shop and he got a call and it was basically someone just telling him, stop spending money immediately. We're shutting down. Mm -hmm. And they actually had to go in and, and he said that they had all of these vehicles and they literally oh. spent like a 20 hour session just breaking them down because they couldn't leave them, which is really, <laughs> really amazing. Uh, when you consider all, you know, all the work that obviously went into making this stuff that ended up on screen. And I can imagine it was absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, really, uh, it was pretty much after that point that um, really the only thing I knew about was that, you know, after he took his hiatus, uh, after getting married and having kids, uh, is pretty much <laughs> what he said, why he made the uh, babe and uh, mm -hmm. the other one. Happy, happy feet. Maybe. Yeah, happy feet. Yeah. <laughs> Damn kids. Was Brendan kids, McCarthy a kids fan? Kids ruin Mad Max movies. That's just the, the, the takeaway here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, from my understanding, Brendan McCarthy was a fan, and he actually came in, and from, from the stories that they tell, it sounds like he was actually very aggressive 
in petitioning for kind of a, a, a role in the film or in, you know, helping to write the film, he definitely tried to, uh, I guess he, he definitely like gave George Miller his honest opinion of, of everything that they were doing. I think he said something like he was, he was, oh God, I can't remember the exact term he used, but yeah, he, he was basically keeping George Miller in check, I think. Uh, which is kind of funny because, you know, you think of yeah. some other directors around the same time who were kind of going off and creating their their vision and no one was keeping them in check. And you kind of see what happened. But is George Miller someone who really has a reputation for, for going all heaven's gate on us? And well, he, he kind of did stuff? in this movie, actually. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that one. But uh, but yeah, this was the sort of film, honestly, if anyone else had made it and even with George Miller making it. I, it sounds like there were a lot of times when it was kind of on a razor's edge where it could have gone either way. So, and yeah, the, if this hadn't done well, this would have been in heaven, heaven's gate sure. kind of situation. Wouldn't have bankrupted Warner brothers, but they would have lost a shit ton of money on it for sure. I mean, one thing about Brendan McCarthy, I was just kind of looking at his IMDb. It's interesting. This is the only, only feature film he's written. And the only other writing he did was two episodes of reboot, which was the computer animated hmm cartoon series in the 90s um that's the only writing he's done so this is kind of interesting that he was yeah well it really it i think he he was working with him because it really was a visual process from the beginning and he was like if you go he he did he had done storyboard art for a couple of features i think he did the storyboard art for uh the the lost in space film and he 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 was a a comic book artist and so he had and the the storyboards were basically done kind of almost in the style of a comic book so mm -hmm. i think that's kind of what he brought to the table was not just as a writer but as someone who could take george miller's kind of vision and put it into pictures immediately you know usually you have the script and then the script and then rewritten and and then eventually, when they go to shoot the film, they have the storyboards, and that's the first time that you really have those visuals. But they kind of started with the visuals and never went back to just doing like a right. fully pro script. Right. Yeah, that's that's from what I had heard. Has anyone ever? Did they ever put out a? Um, did they ever publish a book essentially of those storyboards? Because that would be that'd be fascinating if they did. That's a good question. I don't think so. Uh, you can find the script. It's incomplete, but you can actually find the script online. You can find a PDF, which is really interesting. I think it was essentially the initial sh shooting script from like 2002. Um, really interesting read because there are so many scenes that are exactly as they were shot like a decade later. So it's cool. Yeah, I, I just think that's a missed opportunity if they didn't put that out as well. Yeah. Because, I mean, there would be plenty of collectors that would love something like that. I mean, especially because it is, like you said, it is it is almost like a comic book and it is so visual. I, I don't know. That, no, that's a good question because you'd think that they would. But I think, I feel like I would know about it and I would have bought it a long time ago if they had. So, yeah, like, like Renee said, I mean, he kind of went on hiatus. Obviously, Mel Gibson was getting older and there were some other issues with him, which Mel Gibson or, or uh, uh, George Miller was pretty candid about. You know, that was one of the reasons that I don't think he wanted to keep him in the role. But there were a couple of years there where he was still I mean, he still wanted to make the movie even after production got halted. He obviously didn't abandon the idea and he was meeting with other actors. I think even before it went into production, he had been talking to Keith Ledger occasionally, which I would love to have seen 
a mm. Heath Ledger, even even if the final the, like this version of Fury Road had just been made with Heath, Heath Ledger, yeah. if he hadn't passed away, I would love to see that. Yeah, that would have been interesting. I don't, you know, I like Mel Gibson as Mad Max. I don't really see. I, I don't know that it would be better. Max, one of the things about this, Max is not really the main character or the most interesting character um, mm. in the film. And I think if it were Mel Gibson, one, I think he would have dominated it more. I think they would have almost felt obligated to use him more as, as the heroic role, We're taking stuff away from Furiosa to do so. I just think it wouldn't have worked as well. The character doesn't seem to have as many lines as the previous movies either. And some of them are just grunts, like the the closed captioning said, you know, grunt for, for, for like a couple of times. Thank you. That's good. And maybe they did that, you know, to to sort of take it away from him because, like, yeah, I felt the same thing. Like he really wasn't the main character. He was, you know, for lack of a better word, I mean, he was just kind of there most of I the time. I think that's we we kind of talked about that. I mean, the 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 films along the lines have, aside from the first one. The the second and third one, it's he becomes more of, um, he's he's just, well I think Zach didn't you say he referred to him as a as the MacGuffin though actually the MacGuffin would be the the women the the brides I think cause yeah that, that's what that, I that's think that's what he was referring to yeah right mm-hmm. but he's more like the framing device for us he's what brings us into the story and and uh, in uh, Mad Max to the Road Warrior. I think he only had 15 lines. I, th- I think if yeah. I remember correctly. So it's not that unusual, yeah. but I think, um, yeah, it's, it, he's, it's, that's what I like about it. And that's why it works with a different actor almost because the character is, he's, he's just a reason for us to go along with the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, he still has agency. He still is important in the story, but he's not the, the main mover. He's not the main character. Yeah, I don't even yeah. think he's the same character of the other movies. For one thing, his leg is magically better. Um, he's uh, he still he still has the brace, I think. Does he? I, I, yeah. Well, he's pretty spry on it. <laughs> well, yeah, but he was. I mean, he was he load. was pretty spry in Thunderdome. He was bouncing around the Thunderdome. Ah, this is true. That <laughs> is true. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, I, I don't know. I, to me, what this leads to is we've kind of talked about this before as well. That as the films go along, he becomes more and more mythic. Yeah. And and also in terms of this is no longer lots of times when you're watching a film within the film, that is the reality. In this, we're watching a, and in, 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 we're watching a story about Max told in the far future about what would have been the past. And that's the that's done very explicitly in the second and third film with right. narration that tells you, oh, I am telling you the story about this character, Max, who did these great things, and it was it was way in the past that he did these. Well, this, I think, is is another one of those stories. It doesn't have the explicit narration, but again, yeah. it is this character that... So it's we're hearing a Max story. Hmm. I didn't think of it that way, but I, yeah, I guess that, that could be... Yeah, consistent. well, it, it's kind of interesting because the the script the first page of the script it doesn't even have have a title page but the first page of the script says the events of this road war have been recreated from the word burgers of the history men and from eyewitness accounts of those who survived hmm. so it's not really in word like you said burgers. there's no narration in the oh sorry go ahead word burgers yes word burgers <laughs> yes <laughs> it's good um it's Oof. there's no narration in the film that says so but that almost implies and when you think about it 
Max, you don't see Max out of context. The first time you see him is when he encounters the the war boys and the, the people from the Citadel. And the last time you see him is when he leaves the Citadel. So there's no context for him outside of that, suggesting that this could be a retelling of him and it can only be framed within that experience because whoever's telling it only knows about what he, you know, uh -huh. what he did within the context of that. Hey, can I make a plea to any future filmmakers out there who are thinking about doing a science fiction movie? <laughs> Does it and, involve and you, word burgers? <laughs> yes, it involves word burgers or anything else where you try to take like words and, and imagine what people, what slang people will say in the future. You need to ask yourself one important question. Are you remaking Clockwork Orange? And if the answer is no, <laughs> knock it the hell off. Thank you. Which, which actually ties into another thought I had about the whole mythic level of this. Um, you know, as, as we, you may remember, I was not the biggest fan of Thunderdome. And part of that what? had to do with... <laughs> well, part of it had to do with the whole timing of it. Uh, in, in those, I had a problem because it was like... Max and and Auntie and them very clearly remember the world before what happened, mm -hmm. and in this he does now he does actually mention oh I was a cop at one point I think he mentions that just yeah, briefly he does but other than that you can look at this as wait this actually is taking place at least several generations if not more after the events of the apocalypse after whatever happened, um, and and so to me this fits much more as a more slightly more distant future and these people yeah. are several generations removed mm -hmm. and so max is still sort of this mythical character who if you're telling a story oh yeah yeah the, the max came to this as part of this story and it might never it might it might have happened but max didn't actually happen to it but the people who are telling the story made it into a max story does that make sure. sense sure mm -hmm. yeah and the interesting thing about this too is i think that this goes from being ostensibly science a science fiction film like the other ones to basically almost being a fantasy film i mean this is yeah. this is as much science fiction as like star wars is science fiction in my opinion right. to 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 kind of wrap up the background though so so this film so eventually they did get into production again in i think it was 2012 and they started shooting i think they were going to search i think they were going to shoot it in around broken hill which is actually where the road warrior was shot but then there was literally an act of God because a like once in a century storm, uh, there was like a deluge there. Uh, everything flooded to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then after that, uh, everything blossomed in this beautiful verdant landscape. They said it looked like Ireland. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden the wasteland was no longer a wasteland. <laughs> and they basically said they, there was no way they could shoot that. I always love how people throw around the once in a century thing i've seen so many once in a century events i'm either a very lucky man or much older than i think i am <laughs> well <laughs> it, it's actually funny because like i was trying to think of other films that had been like postponed or delayed and i think the the only other one i can think of a director spending this long trying to make a movie is actually the man who killed don quixote which i think <laughs> was also uh one of the things that shut that down was also like a once in a century flood wherever they were shooting that <laughs> Well, there was also Don Quixote by Orson Welles that he yeah. shot over like 30 years. And, you know, people in the cast kept dying and growing up. And you know, it's, it's it's a bad way to make a movie. Yeah. Well, eventually, obviously, they decided to move the production 
to Namibia, which if there's one place apparently that's that's even more remote than the Australian outback, it's it is Namibia. They they talk about <laughs> the production as if it were basically like a, a military campaign because they had to basically fly everything out into the middle of nowhere and set up <laughs> base camp. And for what was supposed to be at first uh, 140 days, and then they they basically got their budget cut and they had to scale back to 100 days of shooting which then somehow became like seven or eight months of shooting. Now, all of the struggle to actually get the film into production was only the beginning, being in the middle of nowhere in a sandy, barren, cold environment apparently makes people a little bit testy. And uh, (laughs) shooting for, I think, seven or eight months, it was already... Charlize Theron had a lot of issues with each other. And as it's told, I guess they ended up taking a lot of their frustrations out on George Miller because he... Yeah, I know, which is really sad because he seems like such a nice guy. And and I think they talk a lot about, you know, he obviously, he had had this film in his head for 12 years at this point, and he was struggling to get it out on screen and they, I guess they were having kind of trouble with his kind of process. I only want to throw out that I didn't realize there was this whole comic series that had backgrounds on characters. And I don't know how extensive that was exactly, but I just thought that was very interesting. Mm. And I don't know if anybody has. Seen yeah, that. I have not it, read it. It, it was, it was like, I think there were like five or six different uh, like issues or mini, like, I think it was a couple of like. It wasn't a, a series that was continuous. I think they, there were like different stories that focused on different characters. Actually, one of the few issues that I have with this film, no pun intended, uh, actually relates directly to that. So we'll get to that mm. when we get to that. Yeah. You know, I, we started this podcast. I don't know if you guys remember back on the Mad Max episode. I read out probably one of the worst VHS descriptions <laughs> ever. Huh. And I'd like to actually bookend that by reading courtesy of hbo max i would like to read you the description of mad max fury road if for some reason people are listening and they don't know what this movie is so what is mad max fury road about well according to hbo max it is and i quote a prequel to the apocalyptic adventures of gunslinger max rakitansky and his super cop cronies I think well, I watched the wrong movie. What the hell? Yeah, I, I, I did see that. I clearly have made a terrible mistake. That's where I watched and I was like, oh, it's a prequel. That's cool. A, a one-sentence <laughs> description that has multiple factual errors, not to mention they spell it. They It's, it's interesting because they actually give his full name, but they misspell it. They spell it R-O-C-K-E-T-A-N-S-K-I. Two two misspellings in his name. The least of its sins. Every word in that description is a lie, including the and a. I mean, well, they did use Max though. God, but that might be because that's part of the I name. I took of the that as gospel channel. truth when I saw it. What you know, monkey on a typewriter came up with that description? So, Alan, now knowing that that's not correct, does that change your view of the film? Oh, it's all so clear now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but they, they, did, they did spell his name M-A-C-K-S as well, so I don't think that's yeah. right. No, I'm actually just kidding. That's the only thing I'm kidding about, though. The rest is is correct. Oh, that's so awful. That's I, dreadful. Yeah, I don't know if a bot wrote that or what, but I thought that was pretty funny. Well, <laughs> um, I mean, did you ever... Did, I, and Like I said, I didn't know any different, but I mean, why did they say it was a prequel? I mean, where did they get... Because, because a bot wrote it, and it was a sex bot, too. Not even a bot that was trained to write movie reviews. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was moonlighting, writing, yeah. writing descriptions for HBO Max. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, anyone who's seen the movie knows that that's definitely not what this movie's about. But hey, uh, whatever. <laughs> let's let's get into <laughs> let's get into the meat of the discussion by talking about the actual film, which we already kind of started doing. So we'll jump in. Act one, scene one. <laughs> Max does what he actually does best in a lot of these movies, which is get his ass kicked. Get his Be ass a lizard. Kicked. Well, <laughs> that too. So initially, like the the probably the most important thing that this kind of introduces us to, though, is Max is narrating, but he, we kind of get a sense that he is a little bit unbalanced at this point because mm -hmm. he basically says that he has all of these voices in his head which I think is actually kind of an interesting twist. They don't really get into it a whole lot, but yeah. the idea that he has been around so long and he's seen so much shit and probably the fact that he has tried to save so many people and he saved a lot of them, but a lot of them he has not been able to save has kind of taken its toll on his psyche. And here's the problem is that he appears younger than he did in the last Mad Max movie. <laughs> so yeah. Well, now, I, now you know why they think it's a prequel. Well, again, right. I think that's because it's a it's a <laughs> mythical character at this point. Yeah, okay. I did actually look this up because I was I was curious. So Mel Gibson was about twenty nine when Beyond Thunderdome was released, and wait, Tom what? Hardy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like eighty nine. I mean, he looked like he looked. No, because... He looked all <laughs> grizzled. Good job on the makeup. Yeah, but think about this. So, so, so seventy nine. Oh, okay. Impressed. Seventy nine was the first one, right? Two yeah. years later was the second one. It's supposed to be about three years after the original. Okay. And then four years later was Beyond Thunderdome, which was supposed to be about, I think, around 20 years later. You know, you're right. The math checks out, but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> that really shocks me. Um, okay. Right. So given, given the amount of time they spent filming this, I mean, Tom Hardy was probably, I think, around 35 or so. So yeah. he, he was older, not by a significant margin, but if if you go by saying that, Mel Gibson was supposed to be like in his 40s and beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, he does look younger, but you know, it's the mm -hmm. the timeline is kind of weird at this point anyway. So yeah, yeah. The timeline makes no sense. I mean, but who cares? <laughs> it's a great opening. It's got a two-headed lizard. So, you know, instantly we know, wow, this this place is really screwed up. I mean, Australia's screwy, but it's not two-headed lizard screwy. So we know that there's, uh, you know, things are kind of weird there. And then he eats the lizard, which I kind of didn't like. This was, um, and then we have, you know, and he's talking about, you know, I'm the road warrior. You know, it's them against me and uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and then he's almost instantly taken out. I mean, that was uh, talk about subverting expectations. They had absolutely no difficulty in, in, in taking him down and enslaving. Him. It was like, okay. That's, well, they, they take totally him down pretty spectacularly. Um, mm. I think they said yeah. that was actually like a world record uh, roll of, of mm. the car. And uh, the guy rolling it. So the guy rolling it is uh, um, Guy Norris. He was he's the stunt coordinator. And he's the same guy that during Road Warrior smacked into the car the wrong way instead of flying nicely, did the end over end flip that hey. uh, and was injured horribly. So. Yeah, so he went out, and this was like his his last gig was this. He retired after trying to, uh, trying to one up the, uh, Yeah, but he, I mean, he was the stunt coordinator on the season when he flipped it with a world record, and yeah, mm. um, it was probably watching behind the scenes. It's kind of neat. Normally, they shoot a, they like shoot like a pole out the bottom of a car to get to flip. This yeah. they actually had like a mechanical 
arm that came out to flip it and caused it to, so they could get the world record. How many flips did they get to set the record? I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) A a lot. Damn it, Paul. I think think my uncle Paul might have beaten them once on a bender, but okay. So, so yeah, it, it, I do kind of love the fact that immediately they, I mean, there is no heroism. They just no. take him out. They strap, you know, they chain him to the back of the, the car. Now, this is, this is one of the, the, the things I wanted to kind of point out. When you go back and read the script and it has some of these storyboards in it, it's amazing how many, from, from this very first scene, so many of these shots are actually exactly mm-hmm. as they appear in this mm-hmm. storyboard. And it was kind of interesting because one of the things that Tom Hardy mentioned that he was so frustrated about, I, I think, you know, as an actor, obviously he wanted to take what was on the page and work with it and not necessarily he- adhere to it hundred percent. And he said, he literally said like, there was this script that George Miller had written 10 years prior and he was still wanted to shoot it like shot for shot. And he basically would not allow them to really deviate at all from it, which I thought was kind of interesting that he, he had written this so long ago and he decided like this was the movie he wanted to shoot and he never went back. And there are some changes, but he really, for the most part, never went back and deviated from the original vision that he had. Why should he change it? It's, 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 listen, listen, you're an actor. Shut up, Venom. Just, Turn the steering wheel when he tells him to, okay? He's George freaking Miller. You're Tom Hardy. <laughs> so so you adhere to the auteur theory of, of film if, there? If, that... if the auteur in question is George Miller, yes. If it's Ewan <laughs> yeah. Ball, no, I if mean... it's, uh, you know, if it's Opie from Happy Days, no, go ahead. <laughs> improvise. <laughs> but, no, I mean, looking, looking at the end result of the film, I think it was, <laughs> I mean... There's no reason to have diverted from this. Right. Well, well, yeah. yeah. And we'll talk about that in kind of a, the the end because, I, I like I said, this feels like a movie that was on Razor's Edge. It could have gone either way. And the fact that it was such a great film that was so well-received and so successful, one of the women who played one of the wives was like, it was hell. It was nine months of shooting. It was, they were, they, for a lot of the shoot, they were wearing little to nothing and it was freezing cold. And she just said it was it was like one of the worst things she'd ever done. And then when she saw the final film, she was like, I would go back and do that again in a heartbeat because of what the final product looked like. Well, that's like childbirth. You know, there's enough time in between that you sort of forget how bad it is. I, I'm, I'm much the same way with KFC. I'll get like a bucket of KFC chicken and I'll eat it. And then I just feel gross and sick to my stomach afterwards. Yes. And then about six months later, I'll get this idea. You know what would really be great? A bucket of KFC chicken. <laughs> oh, This film goes pretty quickly. Hmm. And we're almost immediately introduced to the Citadel. We're introduced to the War Boys. We're introduced to the fact that they have pretty much taken Max hostage because they want to use him as a living blood donor. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah, it, it's a great tattoo, setup. Tattooing all the info on his back, that's yeah. great. Well, and, and the thing is, that's it's a great setup because you're, you're, re- you're trying to read it and you go, okay, a universal donor, and then it's, you know, it's Chekhov's tattoo. Comes into play at the very end of the game movie. Well, I thought after you gave blood, you were supposed to, you know, rest for a little bit, and he definitely didn't do that. 
Oh, they didn't even give crackers. him a cookie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't even give him a cookie. Now, now out of, uh, there are a couple of actors, obviously the stars kind of dominate this, but there are a couple of side actors I do want to mention. And one of them is uh, Angus Sampson as the organic mechanic, because I, I love him in this, but I also love him if anyone's ever watched Fargo season two, he is absolutely amazing in that as well. So hmm. I'm a huge fan of his. He, he's got a couple of great scenes. I liked him in the Conjuring series, I believe. He oh, yeah. Uh, uh, no. Uh, Insidious? Uh, Insidious? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Love him that too. When Max escapes, now we kind of get the sense that we, we actually start to kind of see his psychosis. And this is where we get to the thing. Mm. The one thing that I don't love about this movie. So the kid that he yeah. keeps having yeah. visions of. Yeah. So right. she's credited in the in the credits as Glory the Child. This is actually a character from the comic book prequels who oh. he, tries, he tries and fails to save. Oh, okay. I was just say you pick that up from you pick that up from context. You don't necessarily need to. But you know that's one of the things I liked about it that I wouldn't want to read. I know we've talked about this before. At least my personal feeling is world building works better if I don't know. All the I know that right. there are details. I know one's thought them out, but I don't want to know them because that actually makes the world smaller to me. So, um, so, so I know that there was a care. You know, obviously she was somebody he cared for, couldn't save, and she died. I don't need to actually know the reasons. I don't need to go back and read the comics. You know, I know there's a there's a ton of backstory in this movie. That's why I love the world building is great, but I don't want to know the gory details of why the war boys are the way they are or what yeah. necessarily is going on here i don't want to know though but i i know that that's there unless, unless it adds to the story we don't need to know why furiosa lost her arm you know that it fell behind the refrigerator and she couldn't find it or something it's not, it's <laughs> oh not my God. you know we don't need to know why they need mother's milk they found a warehouse full of unopened captain crunch boxes and it just isn't as good with water you, it, 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 I think of Patton Oswalt's routine talking about, you know, the, the pre the Star Wars prequels. He's like, and then we're going to show how they built Death Star. Who cares? We don't care where these things came from. <laughs> oh, my God. I, but, but I did feel I kind of I'm with Zach on this that I, I felt like there was going to be more of a payoff with this little hallucination kid that keeps showing up um, that we might, you know, get a bit more. But no, it's she said so, so. Yeah. So she was in the comic book. Uh-huh. I, yeah. I really see, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't even get that from that whole little subplot. I didn't. I mean, at, at first when I saw it, it's like, okay, who is this little girl? But as the movie goes on, it seems like it was. And like I said, I guess maybe there is this this huge backstory to it. But I just got it as like there was somebody that he couldn't save, so he's gonna go, you know, like extra far to save, you know, whoever he's with now. I mean, right. that's sort of what I got from it. Not really that. Like as I saw, you know, I saw her a couple of times, and I, and I was thinking, okay, well, who is this? And yeah. then, but as it went on, I just kind of got, okay, it, it's kind of playing into his, like he really needs to save somebody because he obviously couldn't save this little girl. Right. You know who she is? She isn't the little kid who sank into the sand in Beyond Thunderdome. He doesn't give that little shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know what's interesting is, is he does think of a lot of other people because when he's running from the War Boys initially, before he goes like flying out the. Mm -hmm. the the hayloft as it were um he he's he not, she doesn't just run to her he runs into mm -hmm. like what two or three other character ghosts mm -hmm. as they were you know in his head of people he couldn't save so it's it's not just her it's a whole slew of them that he yeah i think 
I think my only gripe, and it's actually, I know you're making a joke, but that actually hits the nail on the head, Bill. The only oh, gripe I... Oh, okay. I, I occasionally, I actually stumble onto a point. <laughs> no. Well, this is because there... I and I understand what he was trying to do. Basically, there was the comic book series. Uh, I think the 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 uh, the game that came out around the same time was also function as kind of a, a a side story or a prequel to this movie. So he was trying to kind of do the multimedia story thing, which mm. I actually kind of hate because I always kind of hate the like oh you have to read the comics and everything to get the full story so it's yeah. the fact that they added other context that way i don't know for some reason it rubbed me the wrong way because there were plenty of other callbacks they could have made to all of the other people that he couldn't save in all of the movies right so like mm. he, sure. could have, he could have just had a vision of you know his wife he could have had a vision of uh whoever you know the the warrior Goose. woman or what hey here's Goose. papagallo <laughs> The goose, yes, he could have had goose. a vision of the goose. Like there are all, you know, there are all these, uh, there are all these characters that he he kind of let down over the years in the movies. But instead, they have this kid that, unless you, when you go back and read the com or, or read about the comic, you're like, oh yeah, okay. And yes, you do pick it up from context, so it's not like you need to read the comic. But I don't know for some reason mm -hmm. that just rubbed me the wrong way. It's my only one of like one or two gripes mm -hmm. about this movie. But it's Goose's daughter. <laughs> that's true he had a kid with that that uh lounge singer right and oh, that he yeah, never met yeah. and yeah there you go there you go no actually the first time i saw they at one point they show her get run you know he has a flashback and she gets run down by like a whole bunch of trucks the first time i saw that it was so quick i thought that was him flashing back to his wife but had inflated it so it wasn't just the motorcycles but in his mind it was all these big trucks and then this, watching it this time, I was like, wait, no, that was that little girl. We don't know who the hell she was. Well, we are also introduced to Immortan Joe, the War Boys, Furiosa. We kind of get a little bit of all this. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys, I'm going to open it up. What did you guys love about the first act? Like, what are your thoughts? I mean, there's, there's so much. I mean, so, again, it's, you get so much world building, so much. Yeah. Um, you pick up so much, like I said, from context. We don't know the details, but holy shit, okay, water is really scarce. Oh, God, this guy is obviously some sort of warlord. Oh, these people treat him religiously. Oh, my God, wait, he's he's a human blood bag for him. Oh, my, I mean, you, you get all this, and it's it's with almost no real dialogue about it. You're just getting it from context of what's going on. Oh, my God, they're using people on, literally on treadmills as power to raise and lower the <laughs> stuff. Yeah. You know, well, and, and of course, I mean, I think everybody probably thought this, but, you know, when that when he lets that water go, I mean, are these people not the most inefficient people oh, ever like, gathering water yeah. for people that don't have water? It's, it's right like, by their feet and the they're trying floor. to catch a drop. Yeah, just, I know. Yeah. yeah, right. There's this big, there's this big like waterfall and nobody's over there. They're trying to catch like the rain that's falling. It was like, <laughs> oh my God, get under the water. You know, it was just. I don't so much blame the people who are trying to get the water as I blame Immortan Joe, who's obviously like in classic dictator fashion. Like he's not giving them water to help them out or to save them. He's trying to have a big flamboyant show and say like, "Hey, you have to, you have to basically worship me because I'm the only one who can give you these resources." And don't get yeah. addicted to the water. Like what? The yeah, hell? I like that. It'll let you down. And you know, yeah. I mean, look, this is a cool world and it's great world building, but it makes no logical sense because it looks like the only thing that grows in this area is sand. 
these people are just sitting there. This is the only water they get, and they, they don't get very much. So there's no way that, that there's life here. Yeah, there, there's a greenhouse and stuff up in the mountains, but it looks like that's just for Joe and the boys. Uh, I don't think that it's getting down to those toothless people down, down at the bottom there. Sometimes he opens up, the, he push, pulls different levers, and like carrots and potatoes come flying out. Oh, oh, that can. Hurt. And then that takes out half the population. That's it does it puts out an eye. A carrot can do that from that. Yeah, home. and then people have fresh meat. Are are you making a are you making a reference there, Paul? <laughs> a reference to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're not. No. No. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, I was. No. 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 Hold on. It's funny. It's funny. Okay. It's funny that you mentioned that. It's funny that you mentioned that in the original script. He does not. Oh, no. Yeah, no, no, I'm not making this up. He does not. Uh, he does not give them water. He throws potatoes down on them. Stop <laughs> it! Wow. No. Not yeah, I'm like, from the potatoes and drink that. I mean, they just suck <laughs> yeah. the juice from the potato. And then it's a truck full of potatoes he's taking to. The <laughs> yeah. The 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 gag is that there's one blue potato, and if you get the blue potato, then you get to come up into the citadel. And then the the gag, the payoff there is later on. There's a guy that gets the blue potato, and he gets to come up into the citadel. And later on, there's a shot where you see him, and he's chained up to one of the treadmills. Oh no! Yeah. I'm not making. Oh, this I up. Like a sex well, that's. <laughs> hey, but at least you get fed. You know exactly. I mean, being, I, I do the treadmill. <laughs> get some nice good abs going. Yeah, here. yeah, it worked out pretty well for Conan. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. Uh, so I, it is interesting, you know, they, they once asked a bunch of futurists what they, you know, different questions about the future. And they, they said, what do you think the main energy source of the future will be? And one of them had the balls to say slavery. And uh, yeah, that, that, that definitely comes true here. Um, but I just, I still don't get exactly how it all, that we get little glimpses and pieces of how it's working there. And why is a Moden Joe so screwed up it, it, that seems like a bit of a trope now you know he's like baron harkonnen where you get lots of open sores and just nastiness i guess it's the radiation is that why the boys need a blood donor because they're all just kind of living on borrowed time yeah yeah and that's why it was such a big deal about having healthy babies because if you notice his other sons you have the one son who is who's uh smaller and, and disabled mm -hmm. in like the chair in the chair yeah um and then you have rictus who it's funny because each time i each time i watch it i completely forget till the very end that rictus is on on oxygen um you know it's uh -huh. when he's fighting and that he's on oxygen it's like oh wow rictus might look like you know almost like the rock and he looks like he could you know beat the shit out of you but which he could but he's on oxygen as well so now rictus is played by nathan jones right yes Yes, yeah. Nathan, yeah, Nathan yeah. Jones, who was who was a pro wrestler briefly, but it didn't really work out for him. Um, he, but oh boy, he's got the look. I can see why. Yeah, Vince McMahon yeah. thought he would work out as a wrestler because he's just he's just impressive. But uh, he's fun in movies. The thing I love about Nathan Jones is, I mean, he yeah, he's like six eleven in real life. He is just a massive human, and I love the fact that he has actually been not so much in this one, but. In a lot of movies, he he's just typecast as the big imposing guy who comes in and then mm -hmm. gets his ass beat by the hero. He was in Fearless. He <laughs> fought Jet Li. Uh, he was in oh. The Protector with, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, help me out. Uh, Tony Jaa? Yeah, Tony Jaa. He gets his ass kicked in that. He's in the beginning, the very beginning of uh, of Troy where he like comes out and uh, Brad Pitt kills him 
in like one oh, one shot. That guy, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah. that's a so great, I yeah. these typecasts is just like look at how fucking big this guy is. Look at how scary he is. Oh, but but yeah, he he the, our hero the hero ass, so yeah, the hero's so badass. He can hit him in one shot. Um, he does probably has more more lines and more to do in this movie than anything else he's ever been in, and I think it works because uh, he's he is kind of a fun actor. So in wrestling terms, he's what we call enhancement talent. That's an actual, okay. yeah. Okay. What they used yeah, to call sure. it's, it's guys who are good. They put up a good show. They're not pure jobbers and just lose and get stomped. They put up a good show, and occasionally they're allowed to win against even people lesser on the totem pole than they are. But when they go up against the hero, the the face, the the, the guy they're trying to build up, they they're winning for most of the match, but then lose at the end because uh, uh, our hero was just too. But they lose in a way that when they show up again, there's always that possibility they could win. Just for those wrestling fans out there, you know, I'm trying to broaden our base. You know, uh, today I learned. Yeah, yeah. So so back actually to the, we were talking about how this whole thing works too in terms of um, the sort of the world. That's one of the things I thought was kind of neat is that they're having they're basically bartering. You have these two other communities. They've got a lot of water. They need yeah. gasoline, and they clearly need bullets. So they've got the other two communities, the 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 um, the bullet farm and mm -hmm. gas town. Yeah. Gas town. That's it. I'm going to sneeze here for a second. Hold on. One second. <laughs> that's fine. I'm not editing this out. Oh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> oh great! I'm I turn away. Wearing a mask at least because you know. Oh god! I just got Jeez. sick through the mic. That was, yeah, that, was really. that was into my elbow too. In For Ew. you, I have powerful sneezes. So, yeah, um, I I love the fact that they have those other communities and that that's they're bartering and it's like oh it's it's our usual run we're doing our usual run to to barter with these other two. Why do they need the bullet farm? I mean, who they, they need shoot? bullets. Yeah. To, for what? For their to guns. <laughs> who, which which they're using to shoot at. Probably well, they the use a lot farmers. of this movie, but I think they just fire them in the air. <laughs> no, for yeah. they've got they've <laughs> so got they food and water and a place to live. They need nothing. The bullet farmers should be should be the ones they're fighting against. The bullet if the bullet farmers had any sense, they'd be showing up there with their they got aforementioned no bullets. <laughs> There's no guns in Bullet Farm. Only oh, bullets. That is that is <laughs> piss poor planning right there. <laughs> But they they do use them for art for denture dentures though. Yes. So that works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I love that. And we were talking about the the uh, the mother's milk earlier. I think that's part of the trade too. Is they basically use that to barter for these other resources. Exceedingly inefficient. Now that I think about, it, I guess we we also have the other group that I don't know if they were named or not. Who were the um, who were the motorcycle guys with the antenna? Those were the the um, vultures, weren't they? The vultures. Oh, so probably. really, the vultures yeah. are raiders. They're like Vikings. So they're yeah. probably raiding, you know, and Emoten Joe has to fight them off with the bullets that he gets from the bullet farm. And there everything. you go. So, yeah. And, and I guess that's probably, okay, now I'm thinking. That, so that's probably where Furiosa gets her streak right and probably also where she lost her arm fighting these raiders. Now, there was another thing that somebody mentioned <clears throat> um, last time where, where they were talking about in um, – Thunderdome, the kid, uh, is it loose screw or screw loose screw or loose, whatever? Yeah. They, were, they were saying that they reminded them of the, uh, and uh, at the time I didn't yeah. get the reference, but the, uh, the War Boys in um, mm. this one. Yeah. And and I definitely saw that. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know if 
you know, I don't know if that was the intention, but yeah, they, they definitely did, uh, you know, had the same look now. And the other thing, I mean, am I the only one that, like I said, I just saw this, but when I saw the first war boy, did I, I mean, I was like, Oh my God, Zach is in this movie. I mean, am I the <laughs> only one that saw Zach I I'm not uh, saying anything. My, my lips are sealed. I've never said anything like that to anybody ever. I wish I was yeah, in as good a shape as, as all the actors yeah. that played the war boys. Bald six pack abs, big smile <laughs> yep. on their face. It's Zach. That's me. <laughs> well, you know, okay, you know when you see a movie and you you see somebody, and it's like, God, what have I seen this guy in? I've seen this guy in something. And the main war boy, I all I could not get Zach out of my mind. I'm like, he wait, looks are you like talking about Zach. Nux? He looks like Zach. What? Nux? 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 Yeah, yeah. No, no. And I was like, <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I, I, and I just gave up on. It. I'm like, I think this guy just reminds me of Zach because I, I was doing that earlier in a. You know, Zach, uh, Dragon Con may well be coming up this year, and you know, you're looking for some cosplay. Yeah, but I'm also not looking for some exercise, so I think that's out. I could be the war boy who like let himself go. <laughs> My war is with <laughs> losing weight. I'll be the lazy war boy. He was like, no, the the rest of you go on ahead. I'll, uh, I'll stay back here and protect the Citadel. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'll take that as a compliment, though, because so Nux is played by Nicholas Holt, who I absolutely love. If you He's actually great. recognize him from something, it was probably the uh, the new X-Men movies where he plays Beast, which I also love him in now. Oh, oh, yeah. I've seen all of the, uh, of the Marvel DC yeah. action uh, movies. So, yeah, that must be it. Which... Uh, Interestingly <laughs> enough, so his companion Slit is played by Josh Hellman, who was also in the new X Men movies as a younger William Stryker. Huh. Yeah. Oh. So, um, we, I love both of them. I love both of them in this movie. Uh, a yeah. lot of the War Boys were actually not professional actors; they were actually stunt people. Oh. I think, for the most part, they're actually they're all really good, but I, I especially love Nux. And I yeah. think that, you know, it's arguable that he is the, almost the emotional center of this movie in a way, uh, because he almost has mm -hmm. more of a, a, uh, an arc than any other character in this movie. Right. right. Oh yeah. He has a really strong arc. Yeah. I, I definitely yeah. agree with that. And I, I mean, to tell you the truth, I thought he died like three times. Every time one of the war boys <laughs> yeah. got thrown off, I was like, Oh, it's right. him. It's the yeah. main guy. He's got, it's like, no, yeah. he's still there. So, but yeah, they all did look similar. They are kind of hard to, to tell apart. Now, uh, we didn't mention this, but Hugh Key's burn returns after a 35 year hiatus from the franchise <laughs> to play a Morton Joe and what an incredible send off. He unfortunately passed away at the end of last year, but this is absolutely, I mean, he, he would have gone down in history as kind of a, a cult icon as toe cutter in Mad Max, but this was the yeah. role that I think he'll be remembered by for by most people and with good reason. And it sounds like he actually had a lot of fun with this role because speaking of the war boys, there I guess they they you know they all there was a lot of prep work and part of that was they I guess they had like a gym where all these guys would work out. They had a, a bunch of team building exercises and stuff like that, but apparently mm -hmm. Hugh Key's burn would put it, uh, pictures of himself up in the gym. And he would also like, he insisted that when he showed up on set, all the war boys would have to um, do their, uh, their, their thing that they do with their hands to, to kind of hail uh -huh. him. So that's, he, 
<laughs> yeah, I love that, it. That, that sounds cool. But can you imagine how humiliating that must be to go to the gym and there's Nathan Jones who's got so many weights on that the bar is bending. <laughs> yeah. And you're like trying to lift up the bar yeah. unsuccessfully yeah. and falling down and you get pinned underneath it and Nathan's got to come over and pick it up off your body. Yeah. He was probably so. curling. He would probably like have five or six of the guys like hold on to the bar and he would just curl that. Curl them. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So Morton Joe, like you said, obviously he is succumbing to probably what all of the other war boys are, which is some sort of radiation, radiation sickness, which is why they need like constant blood infusions in the first place. Well, that concerns me because they're the ones who are getting most of the water. Is this water poisonous? Uh, probably, or maybe I think everyone is dying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But they, like you said, Bill, they actually have more of the, the, the other issues, which that might be a point is it might actually be the soil up there, up top that has that issue. And it could be something linked to the, um, the Y chromosome. Cause if you notice the women are doing okay. And it's the, the war boys are the ones that are dying. The um, Morton Joe is, is dying. Now the yeah. organic mechanic isn't, but um, everybody else is in pretty, every, all, I mean, all yeah, the other men the are. The guy from the bullet boys. farm has some gnarly looking uh, feet there. Right. That's true too. Well, right. I got, to, I, now at one point they call, they call um, Morton Joe brother. And I wasn't sure if that was just in terms of just a mm. honorific or, you know, or if that was literally, they were supposed to be, uh, the three of them were supposed to be brothers hmm. or if it was brother as in other words, there are a series of warlords mm-hmm. that have, 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 that's why, in fact, that's why they trade with each other versus, mm-hmm. Oh no, they're just, you know, three separate warlords that happen to have this arrangement. I, I, yeah, I kind of took it as the latter because it was basically saying that they were equals by calling them brother. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. Interesting, yeah. interesting idea, though. They were, they're actually all three brothers. Yeah. Now, we are also introduced pretty early on because this movie moves so quickly to Furiosa. I got to say, I, I'm going to have a lot to say about Charlie's Theron, but I, I've heard a lot of people complain that this movie focuses too much on her. I call bullshit because every moment that she's in this movie is amazing. She has arguably a bigger presence than tom hardy does which i actually think is fine because she is such a phenomenal there's actor. any argument in that yeah i think that's that's true oh, yeah. on both, both points. yeah yeah, yeah I, I think she dominates this film because she is such an incredible actress and you know tom hardy doesn't have a lot of lines she doesn't have a lot of lines but i would argue that they still play their care they still have a very different approach to playing these characters because I think Charlize Theron is such an incredible actress. She says so much with her facial expressions. And there are so many times where she doesn't really need to say any more than she does just because Mm -hmm. she's just, I don't know. She's amazing. Yeah, no, I think she's fantastic in this. And actually that's one of the reasons I'm, I mean, I I love Anna Taylor joy and I think she's great, but I would rather see a Furiosa movie with Charlize Theron in it because she plays that character so well. Um, so having a prequel that goes back and shows the character younger, that I, I don't care. I like I like yeah. Charlize Theron in this. I love her interpretation of the character. Mm-hmm. I love like again she has a, a, the emotional arc, especially once she gets to the Volvani and realizes what's happened to the Green Place and all. I mean, she's she's fantastic in this. Frankly, yeah, she I'm kicks, with. She kicks on her ass too as an action. I'm still so with you on this. I 
maybe now maybe this is because uh, you know Zach was talking about she and Tom Hardy were, were taking it out on George Miller. Maybe that's a mistake if you're planning on being any sequels. Uh, but yeah, look, prequel, a prequel with Furiosa. Let me tell. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be. I'm, I'll be there opening night. Sure, it's going to be beautiful and everything else. The whole damn movie is me wondering when does she lose her arm. Every time she reaches into an engine to to adjust a lug nut or something, I'm like, oh god. <laughs> this is when someone's going to turn it on. It's going to get caught in the manifold. Here's the other one. Everywhere. And, and they'll probably get all the way to the end of the movie and she'll still have her arm and I'll just be at a, a massive tension. And then as I'm leaving the screen, post-credit sequence where she's, I don't know, working with a paper cutter. Scratches her arm on the nail. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, prequels below. I hate prequels. The, a prequel of Furiosa She's going to be in danger repeatedly in the movie, but she will not be in danger because I know she's going to get through it. Now, I know conceptually the hero almost always, you know, will survive at the end. It's not likely that Iron Man is going to die in an Iron Man movie named Iron Man 3, soon to be followed by Iron Man 4. I get that, but there's, you know, but a prequel removes all doubt. When was the last time a prequel really did well? Butch and Sundance, the early years. Yeah, that's a great plan. Maybe we should make a movie and we're in the prequel, the the person that like survives at the end of the the last movie dies. And everybody just like, like send everyone home and like what I mean, the what's hell? going on here? How did he wait, die? Wait. He's in the third movie. And never answer that question. How does he die? He's in the third movie. Just don't answer it. The original movie was was his dying thought you know like like a dream just like so he dies in the prequel and then like you fade out and and, and you see like him having flashbacks to the movie that in his mind that <laughs> so yeah. is a the whole thing was an occurrence at Owl creek bridge situation exactly exactly <laughs> Perfect. and here's and here's how well that movie's going to do people will burn down the theater and i will give them matches for it <laughs> these are terrible ideas don't do prequels. Actually, now that i think about it it's been done I think they did that when they rebooted uh, Roseanne with the Connors. Because didn't she die? Uh, yeah. And died. One of them died. Dan they're died back. And back. that was a prequel. So, yeah, okay, well, there's my yeah. idea out the window. Thanks, Roseanne. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, I'd rather have it be that we think that Anna Taylor-Joy is Furiosa, and she is Furiosa. And at the end, she dies. And then some shitty character who's who we just yeah. kind of see halfway basically steals her identity. Oh. And, oh. and it's... It's stolen valor again, and it's Ooh. and she, you know, oh yeah, I'm great Furiosa. Yeah, bullshit. You're you're you know, Julie Schlub face, and you know, <laughs> resting, you know, just been you know doing nothing the whole time. Is that, is that from the Boston Schlub face? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was a Schlub face would not be too out of place in the Mad Max universe as a name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now Anya Taylor Joy is an amazing actress, and and I I look forward to seeing what she does with Furiosa. But I'm just I just don't like prequels and you know yeah whatever. who cares what I like. Like maybe we'll see more maybe we'll see young Emoden Joe when he was like handsome and had most of his skin and you know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't see what's what's the happy ending for that movie? The the sad news is that Morton Joe actually grew into his looks. Oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> yikes. Um. So, so this this initial setup actually illustrates a couple of things that I think works so well about the movie. Because so so Furiosa sets out; she's on the road. This initial scene, before we actually get to any of the action, already you have a couple of the elements that make the action scenes work so well. 
I think these scenes are incredibly well shot. You know, John Seal did the cinematography for this. And I think that he, I think that it's, it's notable that he was probably pulling from his experience on arguably one of the most important action films of the 80s, which I'm sure everyone here has seen. But he also shot uh, BMX Bandits back in oh, 83. Yeah, for uh, Brian <laughs> Trenchard Smith, who, if, if we'll remember from our, our conversation on uh, Mad Max, is one of the uh, greatest exploitation directors of all time. The cinematography looks amazing. You know, he, there, I, I was watching an interview with him where he was talking about basically everything they shot was going to be color graded, which normally I hate. I hate movies that go in and do a lot of post-processing normally, but I think it works so well in this movie because it all looks so natural. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's gorgeous. Now, I have a question. Have have any of us here watched the black and white version of it that they released? Because because I, I know a lot of people were excited about that, but to me, part of the, the color, yeah, part of the color work in here is so beautiful and yeah mm. enhances those shots i'm sure they'd look nice in a crisp black and white but i think there's there's information that would be lost there in terms of when you versus those those blue areas of the orange you know it's the whole color so Wait, people paid money to see a version that was in black and white yes there was a they hey, released hey, can, a, I, can a, I just like record the soundtrack and sell them the radio version <laughs> Well, idiot? To, to, be, well to, to be fair, I, I believe that George Miller has actually said that he considers that to be the definitive version of Fury Road. Oh, really? So take that. Yeah, take that as as you will. I love black and white photography. And, you know, if you're doing a film, I don't want it to look technicolor, but this movie, uh, you know, to me, this would be like like saying we're going to do The Godfather in, in black and white because it's, you know, set in old times. Like, yeah, but the color told the story the color was part of the character i i really think this movie would be i I guess i need to watch the black and white version i will but i i really will be surprised if i don't feel that it's been somewhat diminished yeah sorry he didn't say definitive version he did say best version though so that's coming Mm -hmm. from the man himself is the only difference that's in black and white yeah i believe so okay yeah, which is, uh, again, kind of interesting because going back to what I've mentioned, I think, in every uh, episode when we talk about Mad Max, is that one of his primary inspirations originally was silent film. So a lot of the films that he was originally inspired by obviously were in black and white. So it might be kind of interesting mm-hmm. to go back and see. And obviously this film does what he did in all the other films, more so than any of the other installments even, in that he plays with the speeds of the freight that like the actual camera speeds i think he said that there's hardly a single shot in this movie that's not slightly tweaked in terms of the speed but you all yeah, you see that a lot in the action that. shots where there's almost this hyper like hyper yeah. fast sense to it didn't didn't he he said he did that so you could actually follow the action right i mean i think yeah. that's what one of the things that makes this movie one of the best action films um and i i i've I think I've complained about this before in terms of modern action films that are all quick cuts yeah. and quick editing where you can't tell what the hell's going on. Right. This, every single shot, you know who's in there, you know what the stakes are, you know what's going on, and it's utterly amazing. And I think part of that is, I mean, that is because, oh, we need to slow this down just a little bit so you can actually comprehend who this is. Oh, we speed it up. I mean, it's just, it's, it's beautiful in terms of the action. It's just really yeah. Yeah. So that that was the other thing I was going to mention, because even in this opening segment where, where they're just like driving down the road, 
the editing and the pacing is incredible. I actually was super surprised to hear that the average shot length in this film is actually super low. I think it's like under three seconds, which normally I would I would expect it to be yeah. completely incomprehensible. In this film, every I, I just I, I can't comprehend how a film this chaotic is mm -hmm. so coherent and so lucid. Every single action scene makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I, do we want to talk about the editing right now? Because I feel like that's a an integral part of the action scenes. And I, I think there's uh, actually a lot to be said about that. Yeah, I thought, my God. And I'm so happy that it was a woman and that mm -hmm. and it ended up being George Miller's wife, which is crazy. But uh, yeah. that was amazing, amazing. Women make good editors. This is this has been true if, even throughout Hollywood's bad old days. Women, some of the best editors in film history, have been women. And, and you, can, you can argue why why this one <laughs> role. Was, what's that? Ugh, never mind. Just regard her. Back. Move on. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know why this one role in the filmmaking process was opened up to women or whether you could make the argument that there's something about uh, the way women approach things that make them good, better editors. I'm not saying all great editors are women or that men can't be good editors, a lot of great ones. But why, why exactly? You know, They probably thought it was like administrative work. <laughs> i just let her do it. No, but it's, it's so, not it's wrong. So that it could critical. very well be it. But it's so critical to the to the art. It's the real where the real story yeah. told. Yeah, where the real yeah. art. Anyone who's anyone in the industry would understand that. So if you had if you had bad thoughts about the competence of women, the last role you would give them would be the editing. Mm. So, but yeah, definitely underappreciated. Oh my god, oh, I thought that it was because the woman edited it. <laughs> I mean, I don't, care, I don't care if a woman edits it or directs it or what. I, like I said, I pay very little attention to who is the director sure, but or the, the editor. Women weren't allowed writers. to be directors. They weren't allowed to be directors in Golden Age Hollywood. They were allowed and quite cherished as editors. I just find that I'd like to know what the thought process for the guys back then was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we continue today. Uh, Zach edits all of our stuff, so you know. It might be because it it really is a very thankless role. Like a lot of people. You know, you think about the director and the cinematographer really shaping the film. But yeah, it's not really until you get to the editing bay that the actual film emerges out of the footage. And so, yeah, let's let uh, Margaret Sixel is the name of the editor. Like Renee mentioned, she is George Miller's wife. So I, I get that was probably a very interesting experience. She won the Oscar for best editing for this movie. Oh, good for her. Really so. Yeah. Well, I assume this is not her first delve into the editing realm, right? Oh, no, no they worked no. together on Happy the, Feet. What, Babe and, yeah, Happy yeah. Feet. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, no, she she is, is definitely not her first film. She <laughs> said about that editing an, an animated movie, though. Like, do, do you just, like, let a bunch of animators animate for years and then you take their stuff and say, we only needed five seconds of this? I mean, shouldn't, a, shouldn't an animated movie be edited in the script? Uh, to a certain extent, there was some. I think there was some live action footage in the in the Happy Feet movie, so it wasn't 100% CGI. Also, sorry, that was terrible, Alan. Is this her first movie? <laughs> well, no, you were like, oh my god, I'm so excited! It was a woman, but I mean, she's she's an editor. She is an editor. I know, but this was a fantastic hey, hey, Alan, movie. Alan, I mean, now if they had gotten a little kid off the street, now that would have been. This is the woman. This is the woman who is the second assistant editor on Leprechaun Three. So you get. 
on your hands and knees and show her proper respect. To be fair, she 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 has only edited, I think, like four feature films, and this is the first movie that was like had actual humans in the cast. So this is actually. Listen, editing Babe Pig in the City, an entire movie of animals, yeah. that is a greater that's you're, a greater achievement wrong. than Mad yeah. Max will ever be. Oh yeah, my you're god. Not Working with kids and animals, Jesus. Yeah. Now she said I just wonder how many times when she was editing, she said, Wow, maybe I should really get a copy of the script when I'm doing this. Because Zach tells me that all the time when he's editing. Well, luckily, I but think maybe, George Miller was right there beside her. <laughs> Right, right. He probably <laughs> George Miller were, were editing it together because like we said, you know, he pretty much cut the original Mad Max. There were other editors, but ultimately I think he did the final cut. So he had a lot of experience in, as an editor as well. And I think they did work kind of as a team. But uh, she said that there was so much footage that part of the problem was just sifting through all of the footage they had. She said there were days, uh, especially like when they were doing a lot of stunts, which was pretty much every day on this film. <laughs> oh, yeah, every day. Yeah, they would shoot from multiple cameras at a time. And there were days when they would literally have like upwards of 20 hours of footage to to, to choose oh from. God. So, but you know, I bet it was still worse. Babe Pig in the City, where she's got to go, it'll go through shot after shot and try to find the one where at least one of the animals is not dumping a load on the set <laughs> yes well uh, ironically she actually said there were a couple of times when they couldn't use footage because tom hardy was dumping a load on the set uh, yeah either here which, which is funny because <laughs> george miller talks a lot about animal magnetism because he he talked about mel gibson has it and he actually talked about uh one of the, one of the things that heath ledger had in common with mel with mel gibson and that that Tom Hardy also had in common was was animal magnetism. So maybe that was that was part. Maybe that's part of the animal magnetism is it's a power move. Mm-hmm. They just you know squat sure. and you got to deal with it. <laughs> anyway, you know why he grunts a lot in the movie? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I'm not, I'm not making up that the part about animal magnetism. He did say that, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I thought you were talking about Babe in the City and animal magnetism. Uh, that too. That too. Yeah. Well, no, actually, he he did compare it to that. No, I'm not kidding. He did say that working that he he was he meant it in the most literal sense because he was like, when you're working with these animals, they're cute and you want to like you know you want to pet them and you want to you know treat them almost like people. But then sometimes you have to remember that animals can be very unpredictable, even if they're well trained. And there's always the possibility, it, it, you know, it, an animal can seem perfectly safe and and uh and happy and then it can lash out at you and he said and that, that is was- exactly what people say about tom hardy exactly <laughs> i'm like picturing him like trying to be like oh tom hardy's so cute i want to pet yeah. him pet he's him. almost like a human uh, no it's it's funny because that's that i'm not making this up this is exactly that's exactly what he said um which i thought was was kind of interesting so so yeah the moral of the story is tom hardy might be cute but please don't feed him he is a wild animal and uh yeah he needs to be he needs his space and if tom hardy if anyone uh, if tom hardy is listening right now i apologize please don't find me and beat me up anyways let's let's move on i think we'll talk a lot about the editing and the and the the, the pacing there is a just incredible rhythm to this film yeah. that i don't know if any other action film has ever matched or you know, will ever exactly. match what you say, you know, like that the average shot is three seconds. And that sounds really short, but you know, count it out. One Mississippi, you know, three seconds is a long enough time to register what's happening. The problem with with films like I always pick on Transformers because it deserves it. 
is is not that the shots are subliminally short though they are but that there's no flow what really what makes editing work is not necessarily the length of the shot but does does the sequence of shots flow well and tell you the story when you've got these guys swinging on those poles what an amazing thing i mean that that's just so cool there you got the speed and yet at the same time you've got these guys on the poles lazily swinging back and forth it's almost hypnotic but when they swing down and then the next shot is a closer shot of the guy grabbing someone and then swinging back up in another shot missing by even just a few frames can be jarring you know to, to get those to match up properly takes a lot of work and a lot of skill and in too many of these fast action movies it just feels like they're just randomly cutting stuff just to give us the frenetic feeling of action like you don't know what's going on there's punches flying but i can't tell who they are and, and you said that the average skillful or it was it was three seconds you said per shot I, I think I, mean, I think they said something like two point seven seconds. Wow! And it, I mean, is that opposed to like in normal action or, or other action movies? Is there a, I don't know, is the average like, I don't know, five seconds or something? I mean, is that because I mean it sounds quick, but then when you think about it and you think about action movies, it's like, well, yeah, I mean that sounds about right because yeah, things are they're switching all over, things are exploding, I mean, and it's something a little more old school like Ben Hur. Think of the uh, the chariot race. There's you another know, I, one I haven't seen. I think a lot of the shots there actually were held on for a bit for you know a long time but partly is because you have such a magnificent thing there and everything you don't need to cut and it was also harder to do back then so yeah i do think edits i'd have to research this but i think edits have gotten faster and um in some cases crazy fast i think a lot of that's just lazy though. and i know that i've read i don't know the exact numbers but i know that i've read like people have studied this and the average time of a shot has gone down like significantly over the last, what, you know, 50 years or so. I, I actually don't know. Yeah. That's like actually a good question. Like I, I am curious now, like how long the average shot is like, mm-hmm. I know Bill, you mentioned, and I always use this as the gold standard of shit because it really is <laughs> but like the transformers films, right? Because they're just so incomprehensible. Absolutely. I, I, I okay. I I just googled it. And I found a. I, I don't know how reputable this is, but uh, a, a, a average shot length of six famous directors. Michael Bay is three seconds. So he's Ugh. he's at the that yeah. that exact same time. But like you said, it's not about the the speed of the of the cuts. It's about the flow and the rhythm and going from a to b to c it's not the length that matters i guess is what exactly thank you thank you um <laughs> remember that and it's it's funny too because like you like you said about the john seal actually said something almost exactly what you said when he was talking about shooting this where he was like there the the cuts are very quick but they are always they give you enough time to register what's going on but actually, he, I think he was kind of making a joke because it was like, it gives you enough time to register what's going on, but not enough time to notice all of the things that are wrong in the shot because he was talking That's about funny. how, yeah, how, I think he was talking about how much like George Miller loved to put like different cameras all over the place. And it was very hard to get every shot exactly right because there were so many cameras shooting so much. Um, but yeah, so so I think it's kind of interesting that 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 was basically almost the philosophy behind what they ultimately did was you know make sure that the show the the shots flow make sure that people can actually register what's happening before we move on to another shot 
but never linger on a shot longer than you really have to. Sounds fair. I think in action movies, fast edits are often there to hide bad filmmaking. If you look at like a Bruce Lee movie or a Jet Lee movie, the Bruce Lee, they had as few edits as they possibly can, in my memory at least, because the special effect is Bruce Lee. You don't need to do edits. Edits are where you have a guy who doesn't know how to throw a punch, and so you have to make it look like the punch came close enough to actually connect. And, and he and the people that he worked with, the ones who got punched, who also deserve a lot of the credit, actually maybe more, um, they knew what they were doing. They choreographed this. They spent days on a single fight choreographing it, and then they did it. They don't want to have that obscured with edits. You want to see the whole thing so you know you're seeing you know, legit fighting or at least legit choreography. But if you see a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers dance, it's not done with edits. They just assume nail the camera down, press the button, go out for lunch and let those two people dance. You want to see everything, nothing faked, everything just right there. So now, okay, I don't want to see every action sequence like that because you're right. If you hold it for too long, you're going to see, you know, some of how the magic was done. But now the magnificently edited. I'm glad I didn't realize she'd won the award. That's that was well deserved. This is a brilliantly edited film. It goes also back to something else you said, Bill. You you talked about the quick edits from other films are are lazy filmmaking. And mm-hmm. and I think and that, that goes into with the choreography. It's like they don't even want to bother with choreography. It's like we just throw a bunch of quick edits and something happens. Whereas in this, even though it's even though these are, are not filmed as like a one take and you know these are filmed over, you know, in in, in reality, you know, they're filmed over several days and weeks, one action sequence. Like it's like this is all happening right now. And it goes from one out one thing to the other, and it looks as if it's uh, choreographed yeah. and looks like it's almost it doesn't done look- as a one take. So, yeah. Like it took seven months in Namibia. Yeah. Namibia. Now, we, we were talking a lot about the action, and we haven't even gotten to the, any of the action, but we do get into the action pretty quickly in this movie. It takes us about 15 minutes to get to the uh, <laughs> really the beginning of a chase scene that hardly ever ends in this movie. Yeah. So we get the reason for Max being, you know, kind of rescued. Um, but not really because he's immediately kind of crucified on the front of a car and uh, attached to a uh, uh, an IV. And uh, we're basically off on the first of many chases in this film. I When everybody rolled out, I just, the vehicles just really kind of blew me away. And we'll get, you know, more into that Um but and you know I love this that Joe was driving his own vehicle. That was just amazing, like a monster truck. Yeah, I mean I think the the moment that you really realize that this film is something different when they cut to that the convoy rolling out, and <laughs> you get this kind of amazing score, but then you realize that some of the music that you're hearing is actually being generated by this massive truck of drummers and the doof warrior <laughs> playing an electric guitar doof that shoots warrior. flames out of it. Oh man. Oh yeah. That's... For me, that's when the movie clicked and I was like, okay, this is something I have never seen before. Yeah. Oh, when they we had the truck full with, with Tyco drummers on the back and um, my wife and I used to play Tyco drums, not ones that big and not on the back of, giant war trucks but we played taiko drums and to see taiko drums like whoa taiko drums 
and then yeah, it becomes that's that's the soundtrack. It's just amazing, and it's like, man, you need to have more action films with Tycho drummers uh, riding. Well, I, I thought that they were going to use those guys, you know, until they sort of got going, and then they were kind of going to peel off and go back home. But yeah, they rolled them right out into battle. I mean, that guy was playing the guitar the whole way. Hey, that's tradition. I mean, yeah, you know, little drummer always... boy doesn't go home. No, no, and, and he so does have like flames shooting out at the time too. You know? Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was cool. epic, ridiculously epic, and yeah, yeah. What's this? What's the the term? I think it's like diegetic sound. I don't know yeah, if I'm pronouncing that. I love that. I loved how they they kind of blended the score into the 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 sound of these. What's basically yeah, like the drummer boys or the trumpeters, but the the war drummers. I I just love how they made that so organic. Oh, it's, and it drives it. And what's interesting is like, they use the drums later in some quieter moments when they're further away and it's a much softer, yeah. it's, like it's, it's lower down. But um, you were talking to me, you were saying what, what part told you that the movie was something special for me. It was actually the, the end of that first sequence, which doesn't come till like another 15 minutes later is almost like a half an hour mark. Where all of a sudden, it's it's when um, Nux's car wrecks with and and Max and then it's the screen just goes blank and silent. And the first time I saw the the film, and actually it's it's each time I've seen it, but the first time especially in an audience, full audience, you heard the entire audience all of a sudden realize, oh my god, I've been holding my breath, and you hear the whole audience go yes, <laughs> and and it, it was amazing. And it's that's one of those things that, that I miss not being in a theater. Yeah. is that is that that communal breath where that sequence stops and it's just you re and that's when you realize oh my god this is an amazing movie yeah. <laughs> should we talk yeah. about the 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 score i mean yeah oh that score oh, was yeah. amazing i don't usually pay attention to that kind of stuff but i was just like what is happening right now because zach you're right the, the fact that the score and the on screen music you know comes together is, is something you don't you don't have the opportunity to do very often and, and they just knocked it out of the park so i wasn't really familiar with this guy junkie xl um <laughs> yeah thomas hulkenberg doesn't i, I guess uh, junkie xl or just jxl and and i look at the stuff that he's done he has worked with Hans zimmer but um let's see Dark Tower, Tomb Raider, Mortal Engines, Alita ba Battle Angel, Terminator, Doc, Dark Fate, Sonic the Hedgehog. He's doing Godzilla versus Kong. I mean, you know, I, I think maybe he doesn't have a tremendous range when I'm looking at these films, but he's definitely, you know, if you're making that kind of film, that that kind of big production, big, crazy, you know, Godzilla versus Kong kind of stuff, this is the kind of score you want. Yeah. You know, He's also one of those composers that I mean, he I think he started out as like a uh, uh, an electronic music composer. He wasn't necessarily doing uh, soundtracks to begin with, but it is very interesting how he still has a lot of that those techno influences in his scores, but then he kind of melds that with the like more traditional score, and it's just the result is is something really special. There, there's so much to say about this whole sequence. I mean, I think the other thing that really makes you like edge of your seat. I mean, first of all, all the 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 buzzards or the vultures, like all their cars are amazing. 
and i i mm-hmm. the the fact that they just have this this uh huge industrial machine that they pull out to basically cut open the uh the war rig is i mean it's just I, mm-hmm. everything about this is is just brutal and dirty and it's it's so real too because nothing about this like these all look like vehicles that could maybe function now it's funny because apparently a lot of them didn't function that way or some of them didn't function that well but uh but i i just the the production design in this movie is just unparalleled just talking about production design this is actually more in terms of wardrobe one thing i thought was funny was they kind of strayed away from the and and i think intentionally the 80s mad max aesthetic of the huge shoulder pads i mean Furiosa ah. has a very small one. Max is a very small one, just one. But they in this, like, no one looks like Wes. You know, it's right. <laughs> it's that no one's in assless chaps. I mean, it's but it still feels like the same universe. But it's really funny. It's like, okay, no, we're not a Mad Max ripoff. So, <laughs> we, you know, we've evolved beyond that. Which I thought, I just thought that was kind of a funny thing that struck me when I was watching it. You're right. You're right. Well, it's also because since then it's become such a cliche. Oh have, yeah, you know, shoulder pads made out of tire treads and everything else. There's only so far you can go, and and this that allowed the uh, the boys to be a lot more nimble and scarier. For my, I mean, especially in the opening scenes when they're chasing them, it's almost like uh, World War Z. You know, these guys are are scary little little zombie goblins chasing after you. They've got a lot of mobility. Yeah, so this is actually one of the other Oscars that this movie won. Uh, Jenny Beaven was the costume designer. And it's kind of interesting looking at her filmography. She doesn't really do a lot of genre films. Like she had, hmm. she, she, I mean, uh, Gosford Park, Sense and Sensibility, Jane Eyre, uh, The Black Dahlia, The King's Speech. The, these are the other movies she worked on. They're all like, most of them are like very like, almost like like period piece films right and it's like then she yeah. comes in and just designs these absolutely insane costumes i'll bet she has more fun or something like that can you imagine you sense and sensibility oh i guess i better make sure that the buttons are made out of actual muscle shells <laughs> and it's like you're gonna do mad max like oh anything i want anything i want i'm gonna make clothes out of tin cans and just just go nuts that you could never do with a Jane Austen adaptation unless it's got zombies in it. Oh, like a Moat and Joe's plastic, you know, yeah. body shield that he's wearing with the with the medals on it. Yeah. Yes, yes, the medals. That was awesome. I, I love I love too how it has like the molded six pack on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's to fit over his his actual six. Oh yeah, of course, you know. of course, it's molded it to his body. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's clear so we can see all the pustules as they burst. Yeah. yeah. There's so many original aspects of this, but the fact that this entire opening action scene has Max chained to the front of this vehicle the entire time. And there are so many moments where he almost gets taken out or things are exploding around him and he's grunting and he's yelling and he's grimacing, <laughs> but he can't do anything about it. I just love that so much. Yeah, and it looks he's, like he's made out of an old garden hoe too. Oh, go ahead. What'd you say? Bob? Oh, his face, his face, thing? the mask. Yeah. If you look at it, it's got a place where like the, the handle of a garden hoe would fit in. <laughs> okay, cool. Oh, well that makes sense. Yeah. That looks, uh, anyway. I, I love, I love the part where they give him a file and he just has to like yeah. file at the back. 
that that'll like take forever. Yeah. But but yeah, you know, it's like and you're gonna be filing your head a lot of the time when you do that. <laughs> like, you just yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I thought he was gonna use it to like pick the lock or something or. One other thing that we haven't really talked about yet, but it's really important. And I think it's one of the things that people really, really latch onto in this movie is this whole action scene features a lot of the war boy kind of rituals and yeah. ceremonies when they're going into battle, when they pick out the the steering wheels from what is essentially a, like a religious altar. And then later you see Nux even pulls his, his wheel off and like holds it up. But also mm -hmm. the the whole witness me, the the whole thing about Valhalla, all of that stuff, that's probably the, the one thing that people like repeat the most from this film. And mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting because, you know, Paul, you're always talking about world building. And I think that this, this is some of the most effective world building in the sense of like really explaining to us why these people, why these young men follow Martin Joe, so, like literally to their death. So when they spray their mouths with chrome, I thought that that was potentially a, a way to honor Joe because he wears the big metal face piece. Oh, oh. I didn't think of that, but that's actually very cool. Thank I thought they you. were trying to become like a car, but, but that's the <laughs> same. No, no, no. I, you know, you know, like then, when, um, yeah. You know, like when a boxer puts his mouthpiece in, it's like, I'm about to go into battle. So, you know, chrome so, me up. So tell yeah, me. Yeah, but I mean, it makes, is, it makes so much more sense. I, Wait, yeah, it, it it's perfect. I, I, Renee, you're 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 amazing. But uh, but tell me yeah. if this is true. So Shauna, when we're watching this, Shauna says, "Oh, is that where people got this this thing about spraying spray chrome paint on their face?" And I'm like, oh. "Is that actually something that happened? That can't be true." But then I think, wait a minute, Generation Tide Pod, and the fact that there are more than zero people in the world who have put Gorilla Glue on their hair in the last two weeks. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But was this no. something that you so, saw that <laughs> people, do spray, people do not spray chrome on their faces? What they there is like this uh, this edible icing thing that people found that when they cosplay oh. as war boys, they they spray that on their face as they're repeating lines. And no, no one has ever actually eaten a Tide Pod. It's just something that we <laughs> tell boomers to trick them into thinking that people actually eat Tide Pods. Looks like you uh -huh. fell for uh, it. Tell, tell, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. And tell tell me that nobody's put Gorilla Glue on their hair, motherfucker. That, that one I have no comment on. But yeah, okay. No, I, and then I, people and then people did it to prove. People did it to prove that that the first one was lost. <laughs> and they go God. and it's just like this is just an endless cycle of stupidity. Well, okay, I I don't I don't think that anyone ever. I mean, hey, don't quote me. Maybe. Some I'm sure maybe there's one idiot out there who's actually sprayed chrome paint on their mouth. But yeah, no, it's oh, something yeah. that people... I am going to find a news story of someone who went to there's the university a well after eating a Tide Pod, <laughs> and you are going to give me the most abject of abject apologies. Oh, well... I think you're thinking of pictures of people who are huffing paint. Yeah. And there's a, yeah, there's yeah. a fine tradition of that. that that's very true, that's yeah. True. Which That's I don't true. think has anything to do with this film, but yeah, no, there, there's some sort of like edible, like frosting glitter spray or whatever that yes, people found. There is. Uh, okay. Maybe and, that's and actually what they were using in the movie. That was the whole idea. Is they're actually getting a, a hit of sugar at the end, and that's what oh, yeah, give them a little rush right before you commit yeah. suicide. I love hey, that. I yeah. love these. These first of all, the weapons. Okay, the harpoon, hand grenade, yeah, the spears, or whatever Lance, they are. The lancers. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And and the whole thing, I'm, I'm watching this, it's like, this is like some kind of psycho version of Moby Dick. 
these these guys, these harpooners going after the great white rig here, and and just it's so freaking cool. It's great. Their weapons make perfect sense. I like the fact that when they when they blast away at the tires, the tires are have metal on the inside because they figured out that's exactly what they're going to do. This is this is this is an amazing arms race that's been going on here. But the weapons are so cool. You've got these suicidal guys that are willing to do. And if if you've got if you've got an army that's willing to die, that dying in in the pursuit of this you know noble end is actually the way to go to Valhalla. There's a reason why the Vikings were the scariest people on the face of the earth. Nobody wanted to see those ships pull up. You know, you're fighting an enemy who's good at what they're doing, and they, um, you know, they think they're going to go to heaven. Yeah, I liked them. I would like yeah, them for myself. Great. I was watching mm -hmm. the extras, and they are talking about um, the one shot where the, the one warboy takes the two lances and jumps yes. into the spike yes. car. <laughs> And the way, the way they did that is they had him on a rig and they had it set to stop just like inches from the spikes. <laughs> and then oh, they had him jump oh. and have it slow down, just stop him right before the spikes. And then they... Hey, what could they go did, wrong? Oh yeah, God. and then and then what they did is then they just added in, they added that to the shot of the of the car exploding to have it look like he jumped in and have it blow up. But yeah, they haven't actually... Like, you you got to really trust your rigger there to jump yeah. into a but car you know, with giant spikes. If you're going to do something like that, it's a really good idea to have your characters all look exactly the same. Oh, God. <laughs> Just in case something goes wrong. <laughs> you know, like, listen, if you're doing, the, if you're like shooting the Addicted to Love video and maybe like one of the girls in the back got electrocuted, it's okay. Yeah, and that, that is something really, really impressive about this movie. So I made a reference earlier to Steven Soderbergh and... The thing that I love about this film is not just like us Joe Schmoes love this movie, but you read some of the things that people who actually work in film said about this movie. And Steven Soderbergh was like, I think the quote was something like, I have, I don't know how they're not still shooting that movie. And I also mm -hmm. don't know how like a hundred people didn't die making that movie, which is actually something that George Miller talks about. He, he was very, very aware of the, how dangerous it was. They were shooting stunts virtually every day obviously there is cgi in this movie there is stuff that is yeah. done with cgi and achieved through the use of cgi but like you said paul like a lot of it's very as much as possible is done in physical stunts and then the finishing touches are cgi so so much of it is actually people jumping off of you know, jumping off yeah. of, of cars and being suspended from wires. Those guys on the poles are actually on poles. That was really so, impressive. I was impressed yeah. by that because I was yeah, expecting. Is, I, I yeah. looked that up. There's a, there's, you don't see it really in the film or you don't pay attention to it, but there's a huge counterweight on the other side because mm -hmm. other, so otherwise those those cars are going to flip it's over. Sure, it's won't. not magic. I mean, <laughs> so Steven's right, out of like, I wonder, what, I wonder what Michael Bay thinks about it. Like, <laughs> I'm sure he two point seven, seven seconds slow down, Speedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's probably jealous that a seven year old man made a better action film oh. than anything he made in his prime. Now, it's no shame to be beaten by uh, George Miller. But yeah. yeah, but yeah, Miller has said that he he was always very conscious of the fact that it was very dangerous, and he was actually afraid quite often that something would go wrong and someone would get hurt, but. I, it's pretty impressive. I guess it's a testament to their stunt crew 
that I guess, as far as I'm aware, there were no serious accidents. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there were when they were, you know, we'll get to the, the the final bit, but jumping all the way to the final, uh, the final stunt with the final roll. When they were doing that, they had a, a dummy of Nux, <laughs> and, <laughs> and when it flipped, the dummy's head kind of went out through the sunroof, and and George Miller thought it was the driver. And after he like he ran out, he's like, "Oh my god!" And they're like, "He's like, no, he's fine." He's like, "Oh, you'd forgotten that they had the dummy of Nux in there." Wait, really? Because yeah, oh, that's I, awesome. I remember there was this. There was the a very similar story on the Road Warrior where there was a dummy on the back of the truck, and it and it when a car hits it, and someone now, thought that it was real. Well, you know, it could also be the stories that they tell. It could be, yeah. Right? yeah. yeah Make it yeah. better. Now, they show a clip. They show a clip of him going, is he okay? And running out there. <laughs> and and uh, them actually having, having like... John Landis flashback there. Yeah. Oh, my God. And them having... They actually have, like... They have to cut the driver out with, like... You know, uh, like, jo- to get him out of the car. of life? Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, oh, he's yeah. fine because he was in a cage. But they said the, the dummy, the, the like, the top of the head was just sheared off. Like, oh. it was scalped. So yeah, or Nux. Do you think that? Do you think that George Miller is actually more, even more hypersensitive about that stuff because he did work on a segment for the Twilight Zone? Oh, could be. Oh yeah, you're right. You're absolutely yeah. right. Oh, God, yeah. I'm chilling. I, you know, you, and and of course, part of the thing that makes it safer now is that CGI has gotten so good that you can do some things that would probably be crazy dangerous. I mean, obviously the. The scene, the apocalyptic scenes from hell when they go through the, what do you call that? A sandstorm, fire, tornado, hurricane. I mean, it's like "Eh, Australia where all the animals can kill you and we have natural disasters that don't even exist. Totally, it's totally believable too, but it was great. But those guys, those guys flying through the air and just exploding in flames. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the CGI. There's no way of, there's no way of doing that with with reality (laughs) that would look at all real, but it looked great. Yeah. Great. God. Well, and it's it's actually a, a callback to um to Thunderdome because at the end of Thunderdome when they're flying the little plane and they fly into the dust storm, mm. that's actually like a real dust storm they flew into. So oh, I was wow. thinking of that almost as a call because there's a lot of little callbacks yeah. in the movie, and I, I to me that was almost like oh we're gonna have them go into a dust storm, but we'll have this you know the ultimate dust storm nice. with fire tornadoes. Now, yeah. Paul, did you see this at like IMAX? No, I saw it just in in good old regular theater. Yeah. theater. I'd love to have seen this in IMAX. I almost wish. I don't think there was a 3D version of this, and I, I doubt that. No, it, that probably wouldn't work. I mean, with the fast edits and everything, but gosh, that would look cool. You know, a 3D. I've sort of fallen out of love in the whole 3D thing, unless it's shot that way. But they were actually originally going to try to do it in 3D, which is kind of interesting because I guess. George Miller was actually actively working at one point on solving the problem of the 3D cameras at the time were so big and he needed cameras that could go kind of into these cars and fit into tight spaces. So at one point, I think he he actually put some work into developing cameras to shoot it in 3D. Mm. I actually think he's one of the few directors I would really be interested to see what he does with 3D because I actually believe that he is the sort of director that would find a way to actually use 3D to make a more visually impressive film versus just using right. it as a gimmick. As, as James Cameron, quite frankly, did it, it with, with Avatar. I think, I think it's not given enough credit because yeah. other part, other, yeah, no, I think the movie's <laughs> use of 3D was brilliant. 
uh, you know, and immersive. And there's a reason why, you know, some of the same Tide Pod people were going, had to go to their <laughs> therapist because they, they couldn't accept the fact that Pandora wasn't a real place. Yeah, I'm not going to let this go. Anyway, uh, but, <laughs> oh, but I'm, glad they, I'm glad they didn't shoot it in 3D because I think you're absolutely right. And I think he would have had to compromise his vision to deal with the limitations that, that shooting in 3D kind of forces on you. But, but you, know, you know what's really it's funny? such a beautiful film. Yeah, there's one shot though that is such a 3D gimmicky shot. It works great, but it it, it is it's the very end when the Doofmobile smashes oh, yeah. into the war rig ah! and everything yes. comes flying off, and then 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 the guitar comes flying. The guitar, up that, yeah, and then that's the, the, the one out. CGI shot, yeah. yeah. Because everything else in that, well, aside from the, the the guitar and the steering wheel, all the rest of that is real because they rigged the machine, they rigged the Doofmobile, they loosened everything on it, so when it would hit, all the shit on it, all the the corns and everything would go flying off. Oh wow! So, um, yeah, so that was that um, was kind of. Fun. I was like, wow, did they want to do this in three D? Because that was such a gimmicky shot, but it worked because <laughs> there's a great transition from the steering wheel to the them going off. Yeah, and I just not surprisingly i did pause and i looked for saxophones there was no saxophones <laughs> only trumpets yeah. and yeah. uh bones one of the few one of the few downsides of this film is it definitely would have been better if he had been playing a saxophone that shot fire out oh, of it there was a saxophone yeah. player inside that car somewhere you just couldn't see it. <laughs> right. it was there had to be the next day, though, I actually, after I first watched the movie, the next day I was in traffic in a car, PT Cruiser pulled up right next to me and it had this decorative, you know, wrap all the way around it. And it was uh, trumpets and saxophones. And I was like, well, if this isn't the universe telling me something, I don't know what is. You know who would have fit perfectly in this movie? Does anyone remember the, the, the saxophone player from uh, The Lost Boys? that scene where they go to the concert and there's like the, the shirtless beefcake playing a saxophone. Oh, oh, Am I the no. only one who remembers this? Okay. Yes. No, 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 that no, is no, one, one of the most disturbing sights. I remember. Okay. I mean, okay. Let me preface this. I hate to go off on a tangent, but the last movie uh, I went to see at the theater was the lost boys. They were no. like showing older movies and I went oh, to see Oh, thank God. I was I afraid that was the last movie you got to see during its first run. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I remember when it came on, I was like, Oh my, I remember this scene now. And you know, I had blocked it. Oh yeah. Now I never, yeah. um, oh, I mean, I blocked it from my mind, but yeah, it came back. Um, and you know, it affected me negatively ever since really. Speaking of cosplay <laughs> ideas. Yeah. Oh. Now, who yeah. is that guy? Can I see some more of his saxophone work? Somewhere? Uh, we'll, yeah, we'll find some. We'll we'll probably do a whole a whole episode, not on oh. the Lost Boys, but just on that one scene at some point. That would be great. I think there's a subreddit direct dedicated to him. So we we oh. should we should do a mini we should do a mini episode like the greatest sax scenes in film history. <gasps> oh, oh. Greatest, greatest sax scenes. Oh. on the right track. This is how, what, how I react every time you guys send me ideas for yeah. podcasts. Uh, <laughs> well, no, yeah, we, we need a whole sax and violins podcast. Yeah. I think. So. Mm. Um. <laughs> that sounds, I like this. Yeah, how do you bring that. back? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the culmination is really that, that sandstorm scene, which I, one of my favorite, I mean, there's so many great shots in this film, but one of my favorite shots is where they're just about to go into it. And it's just, 
that that long long shot of the sandstorm which looks like it's about two miles high yeah yeah, this is it doesn't get into a lot of the post-apocalyptic stuff other than the fact that you're living in a wasteland. But I kind of always got the sense that this is kind of suggesting that the, you know, nature has been perverted so much at this point that there even even in a even in a, you know, a country like or the outback where they do have sandstorms. But this is probably like a common occurrence because they see this and they kind of know immediately what it is and they shouldn't go into it. But they they have to chase Furiosa in there anyways. Is is this the chase where we're having the the they're chasing them and they're shooting them with the harpoons and then the trucks immediately drop these no, things that drag it through the sand? That's the uh that's the last that's the 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 end the finale. The yeah. Really? Uh, but, yeah. Was that far? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh I, I don't know. Yeah, I love that scene. I love I love the just the aesthetics where they're in the the sandstorm and there's all this lightning and you know nux yeah. is trying to maneuver over to the war rig and he's kind of when he goes kind of crazy and he's like emptying out all of the uh the gasoline and everything and he's basically going to suicide bomb them like you mentioned paul i think the interesting thing about this film you know we talk about the rhythm of the action scenes but there really is a great rhythm to the balance between action and giving like literally giving you a breather and i think a lot of films kind of i mean a lot of films try to have this structure because they'll have an action scene but then they'll have a scene which is basically just boring exposition and you know not that exposition is inherently boring but a lot of a lot of films kind of inherently think that okay this is the structure that we need but even when you get to a breather scene it's very short-lived so yeah, does 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 anyone want to talk about the uh this this fight scene or or the the women? It's great. It's so it's slapstick and it gives you a chance to kind of catch a breather. It's funny that a fight scene would be a catch a breather scene, yeah. but it is. Uh but it also lets you let you let out some steam because it's genuinely funny in that you have these multiple characters that are working against each other with the result being that no one is efficiently achieving anything that they're after, <laughs> which is pretty I love cool. that they were fighting and Nux's body is being just like dragged around. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, and, and Fur- you think Furiosa would have the, you know, kind of a little bit of a disadvantage here, but she definitely holds her own against Max. Yeah. A couple, couple things I love about the scene. So we get another callback. Paul, I think you mentioned that there are a, a couple of callbacks or what could be callbacks. I actually have like a pretty long list. I don't know if I'll remember to mention all of them, but I almost want to go back and, and make like a video comparing this to some of the previous films because we get the, the, the I love how his, his, yeah. what? Oh, I, I think I know where you're going to go going with it. Go yeah. The, the shotgun shell. Yes, and it fits yes. out just like the like yeah. the previous ones. Yeah, and then he still uses the shotgun as if it's loaded yeah. as well, like yeah. he did before. No, yeah. I think those are definite callbacks. They're definite. Yeah, so so I love that. That's his first inclination, and then I I do love that this. I mean, we've already kind of established Furiosa as a character, but I actually like the fact that they don't really give you the full scope of what she's done until this scene. Uh, occurs and then mm-hmm. they very very quickly establish her as someone who will do literally anything because she doesn't hesitate i mean she literally 
tries to shoot him in the head like twice in about a minute <laughs> and a half in the scene oh, and, yeah. with zero hesitation. Yeah. I also love the scene where he comes around the corner and you see these beautiful women and they're just breathtaking and flawless. Mm -hmm. And all he can fixate on is the, the water that they're drinking. Yes. That's, that's a great, that's a great thing. Yeah. That's Hey, mm -hmm. listen, you can only live for three days without water. You can last a while without women. <laughs> as, as you know, from bitter experience. Oh uh, yes. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I was impressed with the uh, with the women's ability to stay so clean throughout the entire movie. Yeah. They're magical creatures. They were... it's, it's amazing. They don't fart. They don't get dirty. Their hair looks wonderful, even in the apocalypse. You know, that's we're how just, all we're just Australian women among them. are. That's how all women are. They are magical creatures that have been left on this fetid earth, and we should just be thankful that they they walk among us and occasionally deign to speak to us. <laughs> Now, what do you have to say about this, Renee? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not lying. <laughs> I have nothing to say. Well, I mean, we could do this on like a, an episode of Mythbusters. Uh, you know, put some women very clean in some kind of a war machine and drive them through the desert and throw a bunch of dirt at them and see, you know, in the end, are they that clean when they come? I will volunteer to drive that rig. I will no, learn how to do. I was going to volunteer to drive the rig. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we need Furiosa. Also, that sounds like you you're describing the weirdest fetish video ever, but that's beside the point. That's <laughs> um, yeah, true. It does. <laughs> yeah. Oh, speaking of fetishes. Oh, um, yes, her, yes, her, yes. Her gas, her, was her gas pedal a shoe sizer? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah well, I noticed that, yeah. You know, that, that is great. a thing with women. They've got, I don't know what it's all about, if it's like the kryptonite or, or it gives them powers, but shoes are really way more important than they are for me. <laughs> no. No, like, like literally. Not for I'll me, yeah. I don't, no. But you're yeah, not, you're not into absolutely. the shoe thing? No, absolutely not. I okay, prefer I've not been, to wear shoes married, if at all possible. I've been married twice and both of my wives have had a thing about shoes that, that have baffled and, and confused me, but I'm smart enough to keep my yap shut about it. <laughs> there are like some guys now. that are sneakerheads, you know. That's very true. I probably know yeah. more guys who have spent more money on shoes than women. No, I actually do love that though, Renee. The, the fact that, yeah, it's a, it's a shoe sizer, but I also love the fact that the war rig, what, what constitutes uh, 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 cruise control on the war rig is that you slam the accelerator all the way down to the floor and just lock it into place. Yeah. In, yeah. I love that. And, and another, another flashback to earlier things, her, her whole thing where you got to do the switches, she's got the kill switch set up. Kind of uh, remind oh. me a lot about Max's explosive. Uh, oh yeah, trickery. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Do a special sequence. Yeah, yeah she is nice. Very much. They are two peas in a pod. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and all the weapons too, because like, um, oh, you know, yeah. yeah, you have the gag from the the gag from Thunderdome yeah. where he's pulling out all the weapons right. here. It's it, and he's like this this and they like a flare gun, and then of course he misses one, which is the the shifter, which is the bone with the with the. Uh, the dagger in it so uh, that that yeah that's the exact thing that i was going to mention because again whether or not it's an intentional callback i don't know but if you do look at it as a callback you it's literally saying that furiosa and max are much much more similar than they would probably mm -hmm. like to believe mm. oh yeah They're probably the same way tom and charlie's are <laughs> Uh, probably. Oh, yeah. Probably. Even during the fight before they get in the, the, 
the um, war rig. She 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 has that one gun stashed on the side of the war rig and smashes the the covering and takes it out too. Right. Yeah. So she even has one hidden there as well. I will say though, hiding a gun outside of your of your car vehicle is uh, that seems risky to me. Somebody comes up and finds it, you know. I don't know. Yeah, but if you leave it inside your car, then like you know, someone's like menacing you. You got like, could you wait here a minute while you go back into the car and get the gun, take it out? You know, I mean, they they might let you do it. Pretty well disguised too, I think, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was like in a some sort of ceramic thing that she has yeah. to break open. Yeah, just also the the, the war rig itself. I love the the fuel pod on the end of it. Yeah, I thought that was pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, I mean the war rig. We haven't really talked about it, but this is one of the most impressive pieces of machinery I think that has ever been created for a film. Other than the, I think the, honestly, it's rivaled only by some of the other vehicles in this movie. I actually remember, you know, I talked about waiting to see this movie and anticipating it for years and years and years. And I remember since it took so long to make a couple of years before it was released, you started seeing these set photos of the cars. And that was really the first thing that ever came out of this movie long before there was any footage or any leaks about the script. You saw these set photos of these just absolutely ridiculous vehicles. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing those online and being like, holy shit, I don't know if this movie is going to be any good, but it's going to be something special because the, I think it's called the Giga Horse, um, the one that's like the, uh, oh God, I, I probably have to find a picture and post it because I can't even describe it, but it's like a, a uh like a 50s car with like the fins on the body of like a a monster truck (laughs) okay there you go yeah um but yeah so incredible and and yeah the the war rig is is just it's it's a monster it's no damnation alley but it's pretty impressive they all had great cars i love the bullet farmer's car which was like a chevy charger on a tank <laughs> yeah i like i like the the car the ones with all the spikes because i keep going back to a movie no one's seen the cars that eat people from you mean the cars that eat paris from paris yeah paris that ate paris i'm thinking no i'm thinking deathbed the bed that eats people um <laughs> <laughs> i remember it because i mentioned it when we talked about bruce spence in the road warrior right. and the fact that he was in that That's movie right. as well yeah yeah <laughs> of course you oh remember, wow right? they really do don't they <laughs> Yeah. Well, we were talking. We were talking about talking about the cars. I was going to wait till we got to the the bullet farmers and and the um, gas town people. But what's neat is the cars from the different towns have there's different aesthetics to each of them, and so you can tell just from a glance. Oh, okay, these are the ones from the Citadel. These are the ones from Bullet Town. These are the ones from from uh, Gas Town. So um, Bullet Farm Gas Town. So I mean, it's kind of neat just from a, a glance. You can tell, even though they're completely different vehicles within a, a town they still have the same aesthetic and their warriors all have the, the same aesthetic so it's it's really kind of neat that you can differentiate those which I, I just love it'd be better if the world were that way like every country had its own car aesthetic you know <laughs> and you could identify it's like just by looking at the car as opposed to now it's just like oh look at that he works in a factory and on the weekends he goes and places there there's mud and this guy is a high school teacher, and uh, he's very concerned about gas mileage. They all look like boxes, shoe boxes with wheels on them. The funny thing about the the bullet farmer's car is it looks so badass, and it looks like the sort of vehicle that would actually be perfect for this environment. 
apparently not so much. Apparently it was not mechanically stable and it was constantly breaking down and they were constantly having to like tear it down and rebuild it practically every day. So yeah. Oh. Hey, look, some of us are willing to sacrifice comfort for style. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, functionality is not everything. I got two words for you. High heels. And so that's why I don't have a shoe thing. But what if the heels were bullets? Well, then Ooh, I would change my yeah. mind. Oh, yeah. Another thing I love about the kind of the motif is all of the like the kind of skeleton motif. And I love the fact that the the war rig has that that skeletal pointing arm on the on the on the door. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just so many small details in this. Like you can tell that all of the vehicles were not just operational, but someone spent a lot of time on these things. I felt that was very custom to her, obviously, because of the arm situation oh yeah that's that's interesting oh. yeah, i didn't even think of that yeah, that's, that's what i took it as i took yeah. it as it was her lost arm basically oh interesting that's how she actually lost it she had it hanging out when she drove too close <laughs> to the wendy's takeout window and there there's a thing where clearly this that couldn't have been achieved until recently the ability for them to you know again think of grindhouse or uh, forrest gump or this movie yeah. the ability to make a, a fully limbed actor look mm. like they are actually missing a limb without it looking like bad invisible man green screen effects mm. is kind of amazing when you think about it, the you know the tricks that you have to pull to get that to work um but yeah they nailed it her, her you know ne i never once thought that her arm looked fake or funny there were a few times where clearly the shot was framed that we didn't have to show her arm thereby saving us a little bit of effects but when when she had it off it looked it looked good. Um, and Bill, Bill, I'll be nice and I won't point out that Forrest Gump was 27 years ago. <laughs> so. Wow. I, yeah. I, I won't point that out. So Good point. Good well, and point. That, that was one of the things that surprised right. me about uh, the arm thing. Now, maybe it's extremely easy to do, but to me, that's like a part of the plot where it was like, hey, why don't we just make her have a full arm so that we don't have to worry about, you know, making it look like she doesn't. But... Maybe it's really easy. Maybe it's just like a, you just put on a green oh, glove and you're done. You know? that, that's it's what she was easy, best painting. Yeah. It's not easy, but but it's certainly more doable. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned Forrest Gump and, and fair enough, because I, mean, I remember that was a scene that kind of blew people away, but it was a much simpler, the, the framing of that was a much simpler shot from what they do now. I mean, now they had an entire movie where The Rock had a prosthetic leg and everything and you think, wow, that is a lot. You know, you have virtually every scene with the lead actor is a special effects shot because, True, of, yeah. because of this. And it, it has gotten easier, but it's it's very effective, really well done. And I think it was a good choice. It instantly made her a badass. You know, the fact that she has lost an arm. This is, by anyone's definition, probably one of the worst days of your life and everything. But it doesn't seem to have affected her any. She's still an incredible badass. Look at the respect and the deference that the people with her give her. She just decides, oh, I'm just taking this off the road and going in a completely insane direction. And they're like, what's going on? Change your plans. She doesn't explain anything. They're just like, okay, change your plans. Move mm -hmm. it on. We got, the, the boss said so. And it's you know, not until much later that he, that he catches on and he's yeah. he real. So yeah, they're willing to go with her and, and just, okay, this is what she's supposed to be doing. Sure. Yeah. You know, she, she's a woman in a hyper, almost insanely comic book, masculine uh, culture with one arm 
and she demands a level of respect rivaled only by Joe himself. Mm -hmm. All right, how do you get that way? Well, see, now I'm arguing that the prequel actually may be more interesting than I gave it credit for. <laughs> He's talked himself into being interested. I've talked myself, hey, into, you know, I've talked I, myself into buying a ticket on opening night like yeah. I wasn't there already. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the other thing about her character design, the arm definitely kind of plays into the aesthetic of she she's not just driving the war rig. I mean, she's kind of part of the war rig. Uh -huh. You're talking about the, you know, the fact that she she has the mechanical arm the fact that the the uh the pedal is almost fitted to her foot the fact that she wears this like basically engine grease as war paint and i think that there's there's a line where you know nux says something about he's going to bring them back and get his own war rig so it's like an imperator doesn't just drive a war rig the war rig is almost the imperator's property like that is their war rig and so she's almost you know become part machine and she's almost melded to her to her vehicle in a culture of people who are obviously like very reverent and almost mm -hmm. religious about how they regard vehicles and another thing another thing that i do love about these scenes is that you do have this interplay between her and max and you know like you were talking about the hyper masculinity of this culture and that's one thing that i kind of like about max is that he's obviously very rough he's obviously supposed to be this kind of badass but he never comes off as this hyper masculine character and right really i mean he's really just he's literally running for his life and he's desperately trying to get this vehicle going and then, you know, when he realizes that he needs her, there's this interplay of, I guess, respect, because obviously he could have just shot her in the head and walked away, but he didn't. Um, he's obviously begrudgingly allowed the the other women to get on. And he's now, I mean, he's holding a gun on her, but I think they they kind of realize that they're kind of in this together and they do kind of have to work together if they want to get away from this greater evil in a Morton Joe. Yeah. <laughs> and just actually going back to the, the working together. Uh, <laughs> what I do like though, is at first he's like, no, I'm taking the work and I'm just getting the right, fuck out. Right. And he drives off. It's after he realizes he can't, that he's like, that he does actually need her. So it's right. not like, he's like, Oh, now we'll all run off together. And he's like, no, fuck <laughs> you. I'm taking the work and I'm exactly. out of here. And Which, she's yeah. like, ah. You know. Which, yeah, kind of goes back to what we talked about in about the Road Warrior, where he is not he is a reluctant hero to the point where he is almost not a hero until he's forced to be until circumstances say that there's there's literally no other way out than yeah. to do something that might otherwise be considered heroic if you were just doing it out of the goodness of your heart. But no, he's just doing mm -hmm. it because it's the only option he has. And then I, I think I talked before about like I think. I think Charlize Theron's performance is incredible in this. I think she does a lot with just like non-verbal performance. And I love, I think the one moment that you kind of realize that her opinion of him has changed, obviously like they've only been together for a few minutes, but the, the scene where the fuel pod, the, the mm. brakes give out and, and she's going to go out and mm -hmm. fix it. And he's like, no, 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 I'll go. And he kind of, she kind of gives her him this look that's almost surprised, right? Because it almost puts him in a 
in a vulnerable situation because then he doesn't know, you know, what she's doing when he, when he's gone. She, you're right. She, she's really good with the nonverbal. She's an excellent actress. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a chameleon, one of those actresses. Yes. And again, I'm, I'm a big fan of, and I've said this before, I'm a big fan of the old school actors where, you know, James Cagney was James Cagney in every single role he played, good guy, bad guy, whatever. I like that. I like, I like that style of acting that you don't see very much of other than Christopher Walken these days. But there's a lot to be said for these actors like Charlize, who can just, you know, you saw her in Monster. It's like, <laughs> what? You know, she's willing and able to transform herself into a beautiful woman, a kick-ass action star, or a relatively unattractive serial killer. And do an amazing job. She is a great actress. Yeah, I actually, I used to know someone who, I've actually never seen Monster, but I knew someone who basically refused to ever watch it again because she said that she was so disturbed by her performance in that movie. Mm-hmm. And and I think she, you know, also, also, you know, as a tribute to her acting, I think she very well captured the actual person. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, we have video of, and you can see the, uh, the just the deadness in this person's eyes and everything. She really did capture that. And I thought she did a great job. She, I, I did not find her, portrayal to be sympathetic some people sort of did i i didn't feel that at all uh, but i think she did a good job of showing why this person is the way they are monster i mean the monster is almost ironic in in the sense that this is a human being but it's a seriously messed up human being that has no reason or you know there, there's no justification for what she is but still in all you know to show it. I, I think that just takes it's so easy to just play an evil character as evil. And and just they're they're sick, they're twisted, there's nothing to them. But to be able to show that the characters themselves don't think themselves as evil. You know, I, that to be able to show that is just takes takes a lot of talent. And she's got it. You know, I mean I don't know if this would be this is not the kind of performance that gets you Academy Award nominations. As I say that, did she get nominated for the Academy Award? Did any actors get nominated in this? Uh, I, I don't think I'm she thinking. was nominated for this, now. Yeah, I, I mean, this is not the kind of film that they give nominations for because the spectacle of it is what really sells the film. But, you know, you, you take this exact same film and you cast it with a bunch of people that try to do Battlefield Earth and <laughs> it's not going to be it. Yeah, it's not going to be any good. You know, they can, you can ruin, there's so many ways you can ruin a movie. Mm. It's always a miracle when it goes well. I, I've had this argument with people, like I say, you know, it's a lot easier to write a great book than to make a great movie. And I've had people just about throw things at me when I say that. <sighs> and I, I, I just, I don't even understand where they're coming from. It takes one person to write a great novel, a really good writer. To make a really great movie, you need that. And a bunch of other things where if at any point there's a weak link in this chain, the whole thing comes apart. You know, you got everything going for you. Great script, great actors, great directors, and the freaking best boy falls down on the job. I have no idea what the best boy actually does, but it's got to be pretty important. You know, he's the best boy. Well, the best boy does something with like electricity so if he falls down you're probably well, then, then we can't see anything the lighting doesn't work and the, the thing is underlit and dark okay so there you go I, my point stands just for the record if 
professional editors are listening to this uh, podcast, uh, Bill's opinion does not reflect my own. I appreciate what you do. Anyways, you uh, <laughs> said all it takes is one per- a good writer to write a good, good fucking... So, so, so George Miller's wife is probably... No, no, sorry. Editors, no, editors, editors. Literature he's editors. Thinking, he's thinking of the people oh, who like... Yeah, he's yeah. thinking of the people who like look at my novels and say, hey, Bill, you used the same word like three times in three <laughs> subsequent paragraphs. Makes you look like a moron. Get a thesaurus in it. Yeah, those people actually are very valuable. I'll, I'll, okay, so two yeah, people. Two it people. takes two, <laughs> two people, people to make a really good novel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I will also. So back to the movie. Oh, no. Well, yeah, back to the movie. I was also going to point out, though, uh, of course, I think that most people know uh, Charlie Theron from her breakout role in front of the Corn 3 Urban Harvest. Um, that's oh, she was definitely awesome. still one of her best performances. Almost, uh, almost as good as this. What uh, role did she play in that? Was she creepy kid number seven? I think so. She was the corn. Yeah, she played the corn. Yeah, she probably she probably went to lunch with Jennifer Aniston. Like, what, what are you yeah. doing? Oh, I'm making a goddamn Leprechaun three or something, and you know, like Children of the Corn. Damn, we're never gonna make it. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah. Back to uh, back to Mad Max Fury Road. I don't know if you guys have seen this one, but it's a good one. Yeah, I, I love I love the the interplay between them. Uh, this is obviously, like I mentioned, there was a lot of I guess stress between them on set, and they even both mentioned that part of it was probably that they were shooting in these really awful conditions for long periods of time, and these characters for like most of the movie are kind of at each other's throats. So I think that they, they said that some of that may have actually kind of bled out um, over to real life, which I guess is understandable. Yeah. I would have definitely been cranky in those weather conditions. I'd be cranky, but the idea that the characters are at each other's throats, you know, I mean, I got my eyes gouged out by a mummy, but I wasn't mad at the guy who played the mummy afterwards. I was mad at Christine for not pressing the button on the camera and making me have to do it again. Oh, I'm no. already full of uh, blood soap. Not, I knew where the blame lied. What's that? You're not bitter about this, are you, Bill? I am very bitter because soap tastes bitter, one. And mm-hmm. it also gives you a fever. I did not know this. That if you swallow enough soap, you get a fever. I could have stayed home from school a bunch of days more than I did. Yeah. I was like spiking fevers. Also, on the drive home, my hands look like a mummy themselves. It sucks all the oil out of your skin, and you look at your hands, and you look like you're 170 years old. Well, could it also like have been that those eyebrows crying. were at the were at once at the bottom of a, a 90 year old uh, uh, elevator shaft before you put them in true. your mouth? That's true. That's true. But only that could a also fool, be why you had the fever. Only a fool would go down that aforementioned shaft to rescue those eyes and, in the and, middle of the and, night. <laughs> In the middle of the night, you, knew and you were risk- going to put them in your mouth. That's why I went and got them. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, welcome back. We're talking about two thousand. Welcome back. Which had slightly more of a budget than Blood of the Mummy, so they probably didn't do all these things. And yet they, and yet they had a craft service table with shrimp, and they were still at each other's throats. Oh, I brought donuts. You oh. did bring donuts, and we maybe they didn't have a donut guy. You know, uh, that's yeah. true. We never talk about the craft services in these movies, Zach. We might want to bring that in. Like, yeah, the movie, I mean, like really good food. I, I, I do think we are wonder, off the rails. I do wonder what sort of craft services they could have had, because if you watch the videos, they basically had a base camp in the middle of a billion miles of desert. And so it wasn't like they're shooting on a Hollywood lot and they could have nice hot catered lunches every day. So 
two-headed yeah, lizard on a stick. Lizard on a stick every night. Yeah. Which I think is pretty much what they usually eat in Australia anyway. So it's probably not that, mm-hmm, much, that mm-hmm. different. So yeah, moving on. Let's talk about the canyon scene. This is another another uh, breather here, but uh, not a long one because we now find out that Furiosa has struck some sort of deal with, I don't know if they're named, but basically the canyon people, the canyon dirt bikers who are going to let her pass through and also blow the uh, the land bridge to prevent anyone from pursuing her. Yeah, those guys were cool. They were cool, but but boy, you know, they didn't learn that when they go jumping through the air at the truck, they're just going to get picked off like duck hunt. <laughs> and the other thing, I mean, they're kind they don't of have a one-trick pony. Yeah. They're kind of a one-trick a one trick pony, right? Okay, so... Yeah. If, uh, I mean, all they control is passage through this canyon. If you could get around the canyon, they would be useless. And also, if, you know, if we can't pay you, we will just shoot you down. So... You know, I mean, they're not going to get anybody else to pay them for passage through the canyon. They're just going to say, ah, we can take you. And they're going to shoot you as you jump over their their rig, right? I think that's the thing is they're basically scavengers. I don't think they usually made deals with somebody. I think that was what was unusual is that that Furiosa had made a deal with them. It was, I think they usually were scavengers who would just pick off people when they went through the canyons. And it's not, it's like the sand people in Star Wars. They're not always picking off everybody. They're getting people occasionally. And so it's just a, a danger of going through that area. No one would go through it that often is how I kind of took it. And when, and if, I don't know if you notice when they were jumping over the war rig, they're throwing firebombs into it. So it's not just, oh, we're jumping over it. We're jumping sure. over and, and, and throw bombs. Oh, well, yeah, the right, right. Oh. What was interesting is those were they went and picked like the just uh, the best uh, dirt bikes people in Australia and said, mm-hmm. what stunts can you do? What can you do? And they said, OK, you can do this. All right, we'll work that. We'll work that as a gag into what this character is going to do in the movie, which I thought that was kind of neat. And they really are like jumping over this thing as it's driving, which is just insane yeah. Ask me. yeah i think i think these are basically hill people right and the reason that they're all on dirt bikes obviously is because they live in the hills and this is basically mm-hmm. you know they're they're like we were saying like each group kind of has a different aesthetic and a different type of vehicle and obviously they're just on dirt bikes because they're kind of you know tooling around the hills and not necessarily out in the plains the the one thing that i really really love about this whole thing is that we get some more Nux and the fact that he is yeah. he basically convinces Morton Joe to to bring him on and he's so excited that Joe is going to let him ride with him and then when we get to the when they catch up with the war rig and he's 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 telling Joe like I know how to get in there I know that, like you know I know the 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 way into their uh, the war rig and you know he he gives him his gun and he's so excited he sprays his face personally and then he jumps on to the thing and he immediately gets snagged and falls down. Yeah. Mediocre. Mediocre. Oh, oh so that, good. that is there's you know, not, that, hurt. that actually had a had a personal ring to it for me. Oh god. Uh, oh, when when I was in gosh. fifth grade, my my teacher was was Miss Porter and she was the she was the terror of, of Richie Park Elementary School. And uh, <laughs> we always and, and one day when the rest of the class had to go to to choir practice because she made everybody made us all to choir practice. So she had time her own. She made me stay behind. There was like one or two other kids staying behind taking a test. She called me up to her desk and she held out the paperwork 
or my homework. And actually, when homework, it was classwork. We had to watch a film strip every day and take notes and write it up. Well, I was always too lazy to write it up. So she looked at me and she's like, this work is mediocre. Interesting <laughs> enough, she kind of looked a little bit like uh, Morton yeah. Joe. She goes, this works wow. in mediocre. And of course, I, I, being in fifth grade, I didn't quite know what mediocre meant at the time. I knew it was bad. And but I didn't you tell from cry. the tone that it wasn't a compliment. Right. And I didn't want to cry because Robbie Stahl was taking the test right behind me and he'd see oh my it. God. So, I, so I did the only thing I could do was I threw up on her desk. And, uh, she, she had it cleaned up. She said, just go to, go to choir practice. I went down to my friend said, smell my breath. They're like, oh my God, it's vomit. I said, yeah, I puked on Miss Porter's desk. Went home, told my mom. My mom thought it was hilarious. She told my yeah. siblings who had had Miss Porter and they, were, they thought it was hilarious. And me as to say, she retired that year. <laughs> oh that's amazing wow. so, well so having him well yell done. mediocre really kind of like oh man brought me back and and and, and hit me hard it so reminded me of his childhood it reminded me of my childhood that must have been oh, really amazing. awkward when you threw up right in the movie theater on everyone who was in front of you <laughs> yeah. yeah no no yeah. i i kind of held it in but you know it was, it was a let's pour one out for miss porter because uh, clearly yeah. that just did her in the- the epitome of evil at your middle school. That's all awesome. she was. Sporting. She was known for just being like really mean. And I, I oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Dead wow. For decades, so that's what I know. The, you know, listen, call, telling a kid their work by, by your own confession, too lazy to follow a film strip, calling it mediocre was a compliment. She was trying to build your self esteem, <laughs> frankly, far no. more than it deserved. She was, no, she was, she just <laughs> did it out of pure spite and hatred. So. Oh. Mediocre is the mildest of rebukes. Not when you're in fifth grade. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then Robbie Stahl pulled out the the spray paint, sprayed it in his mouth and and yelled, Hey, when when you have to go look up what your insult means, it's bad. (laughs) You learned a new word. I bet you used it constantly for the next couple of weeks. Everything was mediocre. Your parents wanted to beat you with a toaster every time you used it. I was a hero. I threw up on this poor dad. Yeah, that is true. That is pretty awesome. I mean, yeah, yeah you do get some street cred for that. I Who did, cared yeah. you through the house on their shoulder? And, she, and you're she, like you're like uh, you're like Flounder from Animal House. You exactly. threw up on Dean Wormer's desk. As soon as I, when, I, when I saw that, which my mom took to me to when I was in sixth grade. Uh, when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> it's me on Miss Porter throwing up on Miss Porter. So, yeah. <laughs> so you were this little innocent waif in fifth grade who couldn't handle mediocre. And your mom is taking you to Animal House one year later. First of all, you got the coolest mom on earth. <laughs> Thank God she didn't, you know, show me audition. So Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I mean, oh. thank God you didn't have a childhood that you watch Cannibal Holocaust and say, wow, turtle soup, just like the way mom used to make it. <laughs> uh, I did introduce my mom to the theme song. She was intrigued. She was, I told her, do uh, not watch the movie. Well, that seems nice. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Mad <sighs> Max Fury Road. <laughs> Listen, after three hours, we start to wander. That's how it happens. Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh. I was saving up that Miss Porter story. Uh, fair enough. That's a no, great a good story. story. That's it is a good best. story. Yeah. That's the man. That's the man with two hands of this uh, episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the other the other notable thing here is that we do get the death of of one of the women, and uh, oh, I think yeah. that this is, yeah, this is probably the other thing that I struggle with in this film because really the only other thing that I don't love about this movie. But I, you know, they kill off this character and I honestly don't really care. <laughs> Am I the only one who thinks that these, all of these women are 
I, I guess they're they're definitely supposed to be the MacGuffins because they are not really written as characters at all. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah, funny because, really, you know, they yeah. do that tease where like she, oh, she might have got hit yes. with the rock. And the thumbs yeah. up. Yeah. And she's like, all right. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then she, uh, you know, you think everybody's probably yeah. like, oh, no, they're not going to kill the pregnant lady. And then they do it like five seconds later. And I was like, that's amazing. So unexpected. Yeah. The women don't, don't except for Furiosa, the women don't have a whole lot of personality. Although, you know, you get kind of fond of the the redhead because she and, and Knox, you know, kind of kind of reach a, an understanding and everything. But the the her death does lead to one of my favorite bits. This is awful. Uh, you oh, know, God. The, the child and, and just the... Um, yeah. The emotion from Joe and and Nathan Jones, you know that that line, you know, this was my brother and he would have been perfect, you know, or, or he was perfect. Which perfect. Is so every way. brother, I yeah. For, I mean, that really pulls at you, you know. It's there's a, there's an actual love that these these are monsters, but they're monsters with real human with, with you know human qualities and real emotions, and you know that that hurt, that hurt. But I like the bedside manner of the uh, the organic mechanic because he's just like, ah, what you had here is in about another another month you would have had yourself a real good, you know, human. Uh, it's like, oh man. When you're the only doctor in 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 a place, you can be a real a hole because you know people will have to put up with your shit because you never know when you're going to get a bed sore or something. I do love that again, a reference to the fact that machines are almost more revered than human beings because he's not called a doctor he's called an organic mechanic which i really love it's it's funny yeah it's funny you mentioned so the the uh the, the redhead uh, capable is played by one of i think one of the only women out of this group that was actually an actress so the, the i think that this might be the issue i have with some of the performances aren't great because a lot of these women were actually professional models, which uh. I think the other thing is like, if you're acting next to Charlie's Theron, you're probably <laughs> not going to look great by comparison, no matter right. how talented you are. So right. Riley Keough, who's actually the uh, granddaughter of Elvis Presley, because she's Lisa Marie Presley's uh, daughter. I believe she was the one who met her husband on this film because he was a, uh, a stuntman on this. So, yeah. They, uh, I guess they met and got married because of this movie. So, can you imagine what the set must have been like there where you've got all of these stuntmen, <laughs> prime condition, oh, man. 12 pack abs and everything, oh. and they're in the middle of freaking Nambia in the middle of a desert? And also, <laughs> there's some incredibly attractive women, you know, models, supermodels. Yeah. And you're like, wow. And you know, hey, listen, you know, it's probably best not to do anything here because you might get fired or, you know, actually just kicked <laughs> off the set, which would leave you in the middle of the desert in Nambia. But, you know, after a while, you get after eight months, you get tired of watching, you know, Hardy and Charlize yelling at each other. And... <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> but wow. I'll bet, I'll bet the stories. If, 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 did they do a making of? Did they have someone just following uh, everyone they, around they did. with a camera? Yeah, I think they did like a short documentary, but I don't think they did like any sort of feature length. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was like, you know, you always hear about the, what what do they call where the, during the Olympics, they have like the Olympic, uh, the uh, Olympic Hotel. Village. Olympic, Olympic Village, village yeah. thank you. And yeah. you right, right. hear about that. It's basically just, you know, after you're done competing, it's basically just an orgy over there, which right. I'm sure it was, was similar on the set. Yeah. 
Good yeah, point. Seriously. Except it was all like the people groveling in the dust. At the <laughs> oh God, Paul. Oh. Oh, sorry. Um, Maybe <laughs> that was just my 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 thoughts on it. Never. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, anything. now you just made it sexier. Spreading yeah. venereal diseases that make them all look like a Moden Joe by the end. Yeah. Oh, God. So obviously we have a lot more to talk about when it comes to Fury Road, but the video store manager is turning off the lights and giving us dirty looks. So maybe we should pick this discussion up later. Join us in one week for the second part of our deep dive into Fury Road, including our final thoughts and ratings. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, visit us at videostorejunkies.com for more content or look for us on your favorite podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter at Video Junkies Pod for daily posts about our favorite movies and, you know, maybe yours. I don't know. Thanks for listening and good night. Want to get through this? Let's go! your name.